This is Skywave Audio Theater. I'm Norman Gilliland. During the run of Have Gun, Will Travel, the question sometimes came up as to just what did that mean, Have Gun, Will Travel? Well, it comes up tonight when Paladin has an assignment, an unspecified assignment, at least until the end, an assignment that challenges Paladin's professional mission statement. Along the way, another question arises, what's a typical day at the office like for a professional gunfighter? And there's one more. How does Paladin decide which assignments to take? Well, the answer to that one is at hand in Assignment at Stone's Crossing. This is Have Gun, Will Travel from November 29th, 1959. are mistaken. I'm not an executioner. But you're still going to pay me that money because I came a long way to face this ridiculous situation. Have Gun, Will Travel. Starring Mr. John Daner as Paladin. San Francisco, 1875. The Carlton Hotel. Headquarters of a man called Paladin. (laughs) Miss Wong, what are you giggling about? Play that game. Silver dollar. Draw him in here. Let him fall. Pick him up. Draw him in here. Let him fall. What is this game? This is not a game, Miss Wong. It's serious business. Oh, hustle. Well, you see, I've had an urgent wire from a man named Jules Cleaver. He wants me to come to a place named Stone's Crossing. Never heard of it. No. Immediately. Oh, oh. Mr. Paladin, why are you afraid to away your time playing games when you have urgent business? Miss Wong. It wasn't a game. The opera ball is day after tomorrow, and I'd planned on that. So I said to myself, I'll toss a coin. Heads, I'll take the job. Tails, I'll go to the ball. So? It came up heads. I take the job. And then I said, no. Three out of five. Heads. Heads. Four out of seven. Heads. Heads. Five out of nine. Heads. Heads. So it looks like I better take the job. (laughs) Miss Wong. Play that game some more. It's much fun to watch. I rode into a section of Nevada territory I'd never traveled before. A stark, desolate plain with its line to the horizon broken only by sparse, dry sagebrush. The ground was lava-formed, hot and hard, and the ash-like dust that rose off it burned my eyes, closed my throat. I'd gone about five miles when my horse stumbled and fell and broke his leg. I was reminded then that when things seem bad, they can always get worse. There was nothing to do but shoulder my gear, walk back to the last waterhole I had seen and hope that help would show up. Three days passed before I heard the sound I was waiting for. You 
better go a little easy on that water there. Uh, I'll hold it, friend. There's no need to reach for that gun. Doesn't look to me as if you could lift it, let alone aim it straight. You shouldn't sneak up on a man like that. You better let me take a look at that wound. It, it's no use, mister. All right, let me just take a look at it. Huh. Rifle, huh? Lucky shot. This should have had attention. I was a mite short of time. Posse been trailing me for for five days. Posse? Out of Marvin. He didn't take kindly to my shooting one of their citizens. What was the trouble? No trouble. Somebody paid me $500 for killing him. Uh, hired gun. You ever hear Myron Curtis? Yes. That's uh, me. Hey, what are you doing sitting out here by this water hole? Besides poking into people's business. My horse broke his leg out there in the desert. Uh, had to shoot him? That's right. Well, now... This work out just dandy. I'm gonna make you a present of my, of my little mare there. I won't be needing her. Well, now, look, you... You watch your left front hoof. She's missing the shoe. Where are you headed? Stone's Crossing. Stone's Crossing. That was gonna be my next stop. Fella sent for me. Let's see, uh, Hanson. Yeah, that's it. Mike Hanson. I wonder what he's got up his sleeve. I guess. I guess I'll never know now. Curtis? I buried Myron Curtis then mounted his mare and started once more for Stone's Crossing and my appointment with Jules Cleaver. The going was slow. It was almost nightfall when I decided to make camp and go on to the town the next morning. I was gathering firewood when I heard the two horses. They came from the direction of the setting sun. And I wasn't able to see until they were right on me that both riders held rifles pointed in my direction. Don't make one move, mister. Hey, what's the idea? Rally? Yeah? Keep your rifle on him now while I get his gun. And now, wait a minute. We don't want no talk from you, Curtis. Curtis? Just give me that gun. You know, I'm like this. I just don't give up. The others, they turn back, but not me. I knew I'd find you. Would it do any good for me to tell you that I am not Curtis? Not a lick. Did you ever see Curtis? Nope. We joined up when the posse organized back there in Marvin. All I had to know is that we was after a killer. Well, what makes you think that I'm that killer? Now, let me tell you something. Ed Wills don't bow to nobody, Indian or white, when it comes to tracking a man. Tell him, Crowley. That's right. Ain't nobody better than Ed. I followed your trail for too many miles out of Marvin not to recognize them tracks when we crossed them again back there. Your barefoot horse put the noose around your neck, Curtis. Now, Crowley, get down here and get his hands tied behind his back. We're going to take him back to Marvin, Ed? Yeah. But he'll be slung over that mare on his belly when he goes. 
We're gonna hang him first. This is the cold season. What do medical authorities say about the common cold? Doctors tell us there's no known drug which will cure a cold. There are effective medications for treating complications accompanying or following a cold. If you've been taking sensible precautions and still have one cold after another, it's best to see your doctor. And here's another important health tip. When you have a cold and need a laxative, that's the time to rely on gentle X-lax. Pleasant-tasting chocolate at X-lax helps you toward your normal regularity gently overnight. X-lax gets along with any cold remedies you may be taking. And X-lax works where nature wants, in the lower tract, not the stomach. Taken at bedtime, X-lax won't disturb sleep. Gives you the closest thing to natural action the next morning. You're well on your way toward your normal regularity without upset or discomfort. So when you have a cold and need a laxative, take X-Lax, the laxative you can use with complete confidence. X-Lax helps you toward your normal regularity gently overnight. X-Lax. I sat through the night, my hands and feet bound, and the two rifles trained on me. Then just before sunup, we rode out in search of a tree to serve as gallows. Unfortunately, after a time, we were successful. I sat on the little mare under a spreading limb with the noose tied around my neck while the men made their preparations, and I hadn't the slightest idea how to save myself. I only knew I must stall as long as possible. Hey, Ed, um, this is awful close to Stone's Crossing. There's some people don't take to this, you know. Yeah, this is the first stand of trees we come to. I know, but... There's some people's awful finicky about hangings. Yeah, it won't take long now. As soon as I get this rope over. Yeah. Yeah, now. Hey, I'd, uh, I'd like to ask you something. Fire away. Your time's getting short. Would it bother you to learn later that you would hang the wrong man? Yes, it would. And that's the truth. As far as I can see, you ain't the wrong man. Uh, tie off the end of the rope there, Crowley. Suppose I told you that Curtis is dead, that he gave me this horse. Well, now, just supposing you did. You hear that, Crowley? <laughs> Looky, Curtis, the way I heard it, you're a pretty slick one. You ought to be able to do better than that. Yes, I guess I'll have to. Hey, Ken, I, I can hear a horse headed this way. Yeah. Well, looks like we're ready. Stand back, Crowley, while I give this mare a whack and get her going. Wait. Yeah? I trust you are a God-fearing man. I am that. Uh, then surely you will allow me a moment to silently make my peace with my maker. Ed, can't you see he's stalling? That, uh, that horse is moving in here fast. Sure is. Sorry, Curtis. Guess you'll have to die unrepented. Hey, give the horse a whack, Crowley. Wait a minute. Now, what is this? What's going on here? You see, uh, he was with a posse. We trailed this man from Marvin. Now, this here is Myron Curtis. He, he, he's wanted for a killing. Who? Myron Curtis, hired gun. Now, these men are mistaken, mister. My name is Paladin. Wait a minute. Let's have a look at you. Well, of course. I didn't recognize you right off with that growth of beard. It's been a long time. You know this man? Yes. And his name is Paladin. Well, it can't be. We followed his trail from Marvin, I tell you. Look, all I've got to say to you two is get out of here fast before I take you into the sheriff. 
Well, I'm a little confused. Because, of course, you've never seen me before in your life. But I'm mighty grateful. Just glad I happened along when I did, Curtis. Um, Paladin. Oh, you can drop that now. It's all right. I know you're Curtis. Oh, you do? Sure, you have to be. I was wondering when you were going to show up. Yes? I'm Mike Hanson. I begun to think maybe you hadn't received my message. But I can see that you ran into a little trouble getting here. I certainly did. I have to turn off at the fork up here. I guess you want to get on into town. But maybe this is as good a time as any to bring up my proposition. Yeah, I suppose it is. When I heard about you, Curtis, I knew you were the man to do this job for me. That's why I sent for you. And the job? Well, the man like you, no need to beat about the bush. Curtis, Stone's Crossing is a pretty big town, and it's going to get bigger. But it's never going to be big enough to hold me and a man named Jules Cleaver. Jules Cleaver? I intend that Stone's Crossing is going to be my town. Cleaver's in my way. I'm going to lay it right on the line. I want you to get rid of him for me. I see. Uh, will $3,000 handle it? Three thousand. Um, Hanson, could we could we do it this way? Could we let the matter rest right here for now? You'll hear from me. Sure, Curtis. I'll figure to hear from you later. Even if you've had embarrassing dandruff for years, you can get rid of it now in three minutes. That's all it takes with Fitch Dandruff Remover Shampoo. Yes, unsightly dandruff's gone in three minutes with Fitch, quickest, easiest of all leading shampoos. What's more, using Fitch regularly is guaranteed to keep embarrassing dandruff away. Just apply in the unique Fitch manner. Before you wet hair, rub in one minute. This way, Fitch Shampoo penetrates right down to the scalp. Next, add water. Lather one minute to wash every trace of dandruff out of your hair. Then rinse one minute. All that loosened dandruff goes down the drain. In three minutes with Fitch, one rubbing, one lathering, one rinsing, dandruff's gone. At the same time, gentle Fitch can leave your hair up to 35% brighter. To get rid of dandruff problems forever, brighten hair too. Use Fitch regularly. Get Fitch Dandruff Remover Shampoo today, only 59 cents. I was grateful to Mike Hansen for saving my life, but I figured the explanations I owed him would have to wait. After all, Jules Cleaver was my client. I had traveled a long way to keep this assignment. I checked into the hotel at Stone's Crossing and called at Cleaver's home that afternoon. Mr. Cleaver? Yes? Your servant told me I'd find you here in your study. I'm Paladin, Mr. Cleaver. Paladin? Oh, where have you been? I've been expecting you for days. Well, I ran into a few delays... I got into town this morning, but there are a few things I'd take care of, like a bath, a shave, a decent meal. So, uh, what's on your mind, Mr. Cleaver? <laughs> ah, that's what I like. You're a businessman. I'm a businessman. Let's not waste time. Let's get right to the point. Sit down, Paladin. All right. Well, Paladin, 
A businessman, or anyone for that matter, striving for success or certain attainments, finds, as a matter of course, obstacles along the way. If he intends to forge ahead, the obstacles must be removed, right? Yes, yes, I suppose so. Now, I'm a determined man. Oh? At the moment, there's an obstacle in my path. A man named Mike Hansen. Yes? Well, now I'm going to lay it right on the line. I want you to get rid of him for me. How about, uh... Well, $3,000 for the job? 3000 Well, I've come a long way for this meeting, Mr. Cleaver. Yeah? It's been uncomfortable and miserable. I was nearly hanged in the bargain, but I'm afraid I've arrived here to find that there's... There's been a misunderstanding. What do you mean? I am not an executioner, Mr. Cleaver. Huh? Your gun is for hire, isn't it? Well, my... Look, suppose we let the deal remain right here for the moment. I'll get in touch with you. Well, all right. I had been surprised to find Stone's Crossing the prosperous town that it was. Then, as I rode back to my hotel... I took note of the fact that all the places of business seemed to be owned and controlled by either M. Hansen or J.J. Cleaver. It appeared that I was involved with the two leading citizens. That afternoon, I gave the matter careful consideration. Then I sent messages to the two gentlemen. Oh, hello, Hansen. Come in. I uh, got your message. Hey, you're right on time. You want a drink? Oh, no, thanks. I don't have much time. Well, did you decide to accept my offer, Curtis? Uh, Hanson, I am not Myron Curtis. He is dead. Dead? Yes. And my name is Paladin. Well, excuse me. Hello, Cleaver. Cleaver. Come in. Hanson. Paladin, what's, what's the meaning of this? What's going on here? Now, you'll find out, both of you. Sit down. I still now, want to know And what... be quiet. Gentlemen, I asked you to meet with me here in my hotel because I feel that we're involved in a situation that requires further discussion. Now, this morning, Mr. Hanson, you made me an offer of $3,000 to kill Mr. Cleaver. What? And you, Mr. Cleaver, early this afternoon, made me an offer of $3,000 to kill... Mr. Hanson. Well, now, Mike look here. Quiet. You... Now, you both can see what this means, can't you? This means that I would have $6,000 and you would both be dead. Oh, I'm getting out of here. Now, you sit down. I'm going to give you a chance to reconsider. This is my offer. I'm going to lay it on the line, a phrase you gentlemen are so fond of. You will each pay me $3,000, and I will see that you both stay alive. Oh, what you're kind nothing of but a cheap gunslinger, pal. And you're going to pay me that money, too, because I came a long ways to face this ridiculous situation, and I brought you together here today so you could learn just how stupid you are. Now, I am not a killer, but you, Cleaver, didn't know that when you hired me for this job. You thought you'd bought yourself an executioner. Well, how come and the you... the man you hired, Hanson... Never managed to make it this far. He died before you could make a deal with him. So through circumstance, you gentlemen have another chance. Paladin. There's room in Stone's Crossing for both of you. May I suggest that you try to share the town in peace? Each of you, in attempting to destroy the other, just might find yourself destroyed. 
Now, gentlemen, shall we have a drink? Mr. Paladin, so nice to have you home again. Thank you, hey boy. Uh, Missy Wong have surprise for you. Oh, what's she been up to now? You wait, you'll see. You go in, Mr. Paladin. Well, now... Well, what's all this? <laughs> Very fancy, huh? Oh, Missy Wong, so sorry you can't go to Opera Ball. When she clean rooms in hotel, she save all party favors... Decorate for you. <laughs> well, I'm overwhelmed. Look at that. Paper hats, balloons, streamers. Well, oh, this is festive. I tell you what, hey boy. Tonight, we'll order up some champagne. And you and Miss Wong and I will have our own ball. Oh, he's uh, very nice. Hey, Miss Paladin, you have a very angry red scar on neck. What is that? Um, it's a rope burn, hey boy. A rope burn? Yes. It's to remind me the next time I travel in Nevada Territory to be sure to bypass a place called Stone's Crossing. Oh, brother, this miserable cold and my sinuses. Haven't you heard about Dristan? Dristan decongestant tablets. Not only help drain all eight sinus cavities, critical areas of colds infection, but circulating through the blood, Dristan reaches all congested areas. In one fast-acting, uncoated, three-layer tablet, Dristan, for the first time, combines a decongestant to shrink all swollen membranes, relieve pressure and pain, an exclusive anti-allergent to help keep breathing passages dry and clear. Pain relievers to ease body aches, reduce fever. Vitamin C to help build body resistance. This is Dristan. Today, Dristan is widely imitated, but the exclusive Dristan formula cannot be duplicated. For real relief from colds, misery, and sinus congestion, there's nothing, nothing like Dristan decongestant tablets. Have Gun, Will Travel. Created by Herb Meadow and Sam Rolfe, is produced and directed in Hollywood by Frank Paris and stars John Daner as Paladin with Ben Wright as Hayboy and Virginia Gregg as Miss Wong. Tonight's story was specially written for Have Gun, Will Travel by Ann Dowd. Featured in the cast were Harry Bartell, Jack Moyles, Joseph Cranston, Bartlett Robinson, and Vic Perrin. This is Hugh Douglas inviting you to join us again next week when CBS Radio presents Have Gun, Will Travel.
an excursion into Nevada, the state of Nevada. Paladin making it clear that his mission statement is uh, not to kill just any old person, and tonight he killed nobody. He makes the point that he's not a mere killer, an assignment at Stone's Crossing, and that was Have Gun Will Travel from November 29th, 1959. A congenial ending to be celebrated with close friends and champagne for Paladin, as played by John Daner. Next, we approach the Halls of Ivy. This is Skywave Audio Theater. The Halls of Ivy swirl around the suave English-born Ronald Coleman. He was well acquainted with the rougher side of life, during World War I, Coleman was badly wounded by shrapnel in his ankle, and that gave him a limp that he did his best to hide throughout his long acting career. As for Benita Hume, his wife, well, she appeared in 44 films between 1925 and 55, so some silent films at the beginning and plenty of talkies after that, and color too, of course. And she went on to TV, as did Ronald Coleman, the couple reprising their Halls of Ivy roles briefly in the 1950s for television. Well, here they are in the Halls of Ivy from November 28, 1951, and a story about Professor Warren's romantic folly. The Halls of Ivy, starring Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman. Good evening, this is Ronald Coleman. And Benita Coleman. And now, the Halls of Ivy. Welcome again to Ivy. Ivy College, that is, in the town of Ivy, USA. For many families, breakfast is a small pandemonium filled with a clatter of cups, a confusion of tongues, desperate last gulps of scorching coffee, and a mad dash to the bus station. But for Dr. William Todd Hunter Hall, president of Ivy, and his wife, Victoria, it's usually an unruffled few moments put aside for their private lives. This morning, for instance, Victoria is arranging a bowl of flowers on the table, while Dr. Hall is thoughtfully staring at a highly polished spoon. There. Now. Nothing like a few well-rained renunciates. Renunciate. Hmm, renunciate. What's the plural of renunculus, Toddy? Oh, you could express it in three different ways. One, Latin, renunculi. Two, English, renunculuses. Three, idiomatic. Uh, some of these pretty whatchamacallits. Oh, uh, I'll take the idiotic way. But uh, they do make a, pl a pretty blink, don't they? <laughs> they do indeed. Yes, they start the morning off very well. But it is the picture of Victoria, well and beautifully arranged in the opposite chair, which sustains me for the rest of the day. Oh, darling, I do feel lovely and conceited. And at breakfast, too. Where my emotions about you are concerned, the time of day is unimportant. My heart ticks away, but it strikes no hours. Besides, I've never subscribed to the popular belief, originated by some sour cynic and perpetuated by comic strip artists, that the breakfast table is necessarily a battleground, strewn with bad manners and resounding with the clash of personalities. Well, that's because you are a dear love. <laughs> As my father used to say, the world would be a happier place if people would start the day by drinking a toast to someone instead of just eating it with someone. Ah, oh, that's a wonderful idea, a toast. Here's to William, the light of my life, 
from a woman who is extremely happy that I happen to be his wife. <laughs> yeah, well, the meter and the grammar may be a little bit ragged, but the sentiment is sincere. Uh, the meter doesn't matter as long as I did. Did what? Uh, meter. <laughs> And not to interrupt a nice sentimental conversation, may I ask why you keep staring into that teaspoon? Hmm? What's the matter with it? Do you want a clean one? No, 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 no. It's quite clean and handsomely polished. No, I was merely fascinated by the optical illusions caused by, by the reflections in a concave surface. In it, I am upside down. It's very refreshing. <laughs> refreshing? Yes. It's a matter of perspective, of course, but any device which can show things in a new light is both stimulating and therapeutic. Oh, you mean if the world could see itself reflected in its teaspoons, it might stop waving its knives. <laughs> Something like that, it is. And then, too, there is a school of thought which believes that standing on one's head early in the morning is stimulating to the brain. It, it's good for... Yeah, well, I'll task you to see who walks to the front door on his hands. Have we got a quarter? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, so I'll volunteer. Yeah, well, if it's a salesman working his way through college, tell him so are we. <laughs> well, Professor Warren, it's good to see you. Come in, come in. Well, I know it's an unholy hour to call, Doc, but I'm on a tight schedule today. Morning, Mrs. Hall. Well, hello, stranger. Come in and join us for a cup of coffee. All right, Mrs. Hall, but only four teaspoons full. And pull down the shades. I've already had my allowance this morning. That housekeeper of mine counts every sip I swallow. I think she's in the secret service of my insurance company. <laughs> <laughs> and how is the faithful Miss Burgess? Minding my business as usual. How are you, nice people? Uh, much better now that our favorite history professor has finally decided to pay us a visit. Here's your coffee. Oh, a full cup. Thanks for contributing to my delinquency. Oh. I never realized how much I missed you two, since I've been fighting with the publishers of that nauseating monstrosity of mine, which appeared under the revolting pen name of Llewellyn Lafayette. <laughs> now they want me to answer all his fan mail. Gee. <laughs> oh, but I understood you had become reconciled to your triumph as a popular novelist. Oh, yes, but who am I kidding? I'm a glorious failure, wallowing in a disgusting success. Ah, and you love it, and it obviously agrees with you, too. Yes, yes. Now, now, tell us, Professor, how was your lecture tour this summer? Well, Doc, after autographing the umpteenth thousandth copy of The Heart of Passion, I kidded myself into believing that the honking gander that was old Professor Warren had suddenly become the singing swan that is Llewellyn Lafayette. <laughs> Say, Mrs. Hall, before I forget what I really came for, have you got a lace tablecloth I can borrow? A lace tablecloth? Why, well, of course, and you're more than welcome to it. And maybe four fancy napkins? I know I'm more the arsenic than the old lace type. <laughs> but, frankly, I didn't know where else to go on such short notice. Well, I'm glad you came to us, but you sound so desperate about it. Yes, are you testing out a new washing powder to win a prize? You know, I like Quincy's Rinsies because in 25 words or less. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's nothing as easy as that. I'm giving an unexpected dinner tomorrow night. And I need you, too, even more than your tablecloth. Oh, that's an irresistible invitation, Professor. Thank you. Well, about seven. Black tie, if I can find mine. <laughs> Go on, folks. i got to meet a plane. Uh, goodbye, Bye. Professor. Bye. 
Well, how about that new pinstripe suit and the flower in his buttonhole? Yeah. And the haircut. You don't suppose he's beginning to believe his own publicity, do you? Well, something's happened. I'm familiar with his contempt for convention, but, uh, but, but this anxiety of his about a lace tablecloth is uh, its a new and baffling facet of his character. Yeah, and he was so anxious about it, he forgot to take it with him. <laughs> I have finally met an absent-minded professor. And this dinner seems to be an affair of state. Yeah. Dickie, I wonder if it could be his publisher who is coming. Yeah, well, absent-minded professor regains memory. You get the door, Toddy. I'll get the tablecloth. Ah, your tablecloth, I presume, Professor. Yep. Guess I left my head at home this morning. Doc, I used to think I remembered everything. Now I realize I just ignored everything I forgot. <laughs> yes, man doesn't realize how much he is indebted to his subconscious. He can do something without knowing why and then find several splendid reasons for having done it. <laughs> it may account for many of history's heroes. Here you are, Professor, and the napkin. Thanks, Mrs. Hall. Uh, it's not going to be a party, mind you. In fact, just you two and, uh... <laughs> Fern. Fern? Uh, Mrs. Winthrop. Mrs. Winthrop? Uh, have we met her? No, I... I was going to keep her a secret until the psychological moment, but... I guess I better prepare you for the shock. Don't ask me how it happened... But I've got me a lady friend. Why, <laughs> that's wonderful, Professor Warren. I wouldn't call it shocking, but it is a delightful surprise. Congratulations. Well, thanks. In a way, you might say it was a forgotten moment in my past that caught up with me in, uh, of all places, Salina, Kansas. <laughs> I was there on my lecture tour. Uh, Fern's quite the literary light out there, you know. Uh, president of the Byron Society, no less. A widow. <laughs> well, this is the time to go widow shopping just before Christmas. <laughs> Charming woman. Seems to grasp things. Insight, sympathy, genuine enthusiasm. Never known a woman quite like Fern. Which could be explained by the fact that I've never known very many women. <laughs> oh, but Fern... Uh, we'll Wait be... till you see her. We'll be looking forward to meeting her. Is she staying here and I belong? Huh? Oh! Oh, yes. She, she's visiting with relatives and she, uh... That is, I persuaded her to stop over at Ivy and see our campus and... <sighs> and? Uh, what? Uh, what'd you say? Well, uh, well, would you like me to wrap up the tablecloth and napkins? Oh, no, no, I haven't time, Mrs. Hall. If any of the nosy neighbors see me, I'll just tell them I've started to take in washing. <laughs> Wouldn't startle them half as much as the truth. <laughs> Go on, Professor. Well, Mrs. Winthrop explains everything. Yes. This would be the place to say, well, what do you know? <laughs> If either one of us ever said, well, what do you know? Yeah. Which neither one of us would be caught dead saying. Which is the first time I ever said caught dead. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 
sorry. Your secret is safe with me. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose I'm slightly staggered by the news that the last of the incorrigible bachelors is thrown in the sponge. Yeah, it looks like the last of the tobacco-chewing professors is going to have to switch to bubble gum. <laughs> <laughs> but Professor Warren... He was the one man who always seemed to be self-sufficient, self-reliant, a self-contained entity. Ah, Vicky, I'm afraid he's, uh, got it bad. Well, if your it refers to what I think it refers to, and you got it bad enough, it isn't bad. It's good. <laughs> of Ivy, where Dr. and Mrs. Hall are in Professor Warren's parlor, becoming acquainted with his lady friend, Mrs. Fern Winthrop. Well, it's been a long time since you've been in my house, folks. Joseph has told me so much about you two that I feel as though I've always known you. Well, uh, <laughs> uh, since Professor Warren always unvarnishes the truth, Mrs. Winthrop, that leaves us without a pretense to stand on. Mm, yeah, it puts it as a, uh, as a disadvantage. Told you all about us and kept you a big secret. <laughs> well, Mrs. Hall, you know I suffer from a kind of natural shyness. Almost said diffidence, but diffidence is always used to explain someone's bad manners. Oh, your shyness is one of your sweetest qualities, Joseph. It's what I remember most about you. Uh, Fern sees me through the wrong end of the telescope. <laughs> it was way back more than 40 years ago. I was just a mere wide-eyed child. <laughs> vividly as though it were yesterday. Isn't it wonderful how fate kept us apart over the years just so we could meet again at the age of discretion? <laughs> oh, I don't believe that fate is really blind. Uh, do you, Dr. Hall? Uh, I, um, well, I... I <laughs> it may be due to my own blindness, Mrs. Winthrop, but I think that the best way to keep fate on your side is to have faith. Oh! <laughs> good! Good, thank you. Fate sure lowered the boom on us tonight. <laughs> of all times, Burgess has to go visit a sick sister or something. And now, Joseph, Be tell them the truth. Hmm? They might as well know that your housekeeper simply walked out on you. Mrs. Hall, you have no idea how insolent she was to him. If there's anything that I loathe, it's a woman who bullies a man. Oh, Joseph, dear, I meant the silver leaf ashtrays, not those old ship glass things. Couldn't find them, Fern. Well, never mind, dear. I always say that if a man can't be the master in his own house, well, then I think... Oh, oh but there I go. I, I haven't let anyone else get a word in edgewise. <laughs> when I get started on the subject of Joseph Warren, I never know when to start. Oh, you needn't stop, Mrs. Winthrop. He's one of our favorite subjects, too. Uh, with the added advantage that you can discuss him in mixed company. Oh, <laughs> Doc, if, if I'm going to be in the fishbowl, everybody else has got to dive in it with me. Yeah, fishbowl, well, that's it. I knew something was missing in this room. What happened to it, Professor? Well, we... Well, um... The fish were getting tired of looking at me anyway, so I threw them out. Along with that old leather chair of mine. Uh, Mrs. Hall, the minute I stepped into this room, I could sense the conflict. Why, that hideous old chair quarreled with everything else in here. Mostly me. Ferns made me realize that that chair was the story of my life. Comfortable, hidebound, and sagging. 
Saint Joseph this summer, he kept apologizing for his age, and I said age was only a habit. Now, that chair was one of his habits. Why, Joseph has a whole new life ahead of him, and I don't just mean because of his novel. There's real poetry in Joseph. Oh, I don't claim to be any Lord Byron, but I used to be pretty good at limericks. Wrote one about you once, Doc. Oh, really? Can you remember it? Can a mother forget her children? <laughs> Certainly I remember it. <clears throat> Will Hall, Ph.D. and M.A., solves difficult problems each day to keep his school in the groove, which just goes to prove he's the will that proves there's a way. Oh, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Very flattering, Professor. <laughs> and it's refreshing to be the subject of a limerick that can be quoted without sending the children out of the room. <laughs> I'm uh, so glad you mentioned Byron, Joseph. I can't wait to talk to you people about him. He's my subject, you know. I can quote him for hours and hours when I get started. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, 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 you must, people must be starving. Uh, of course, I, I hadn't expected to cook tonight, but when that woman left so unexpectedly... Isn't there something I can do to help, Mrs. Winthrop? I used to slice bread quite neatly until the until the bakers, in a fit of jealousy, started selling it already cut. <laughs> oh, no, no, thank you. It's all in the oven. It'll be done in 15 minutes or so. But I do have a few canopies. Will you excuse me? Uh, and uh, Joseph. Yes? Would you mind helping me, dear? <clears throat> Make yourself at home, folks. Coming, Fern. <laughs> I love that old leather chair, Toddy. That was the nicest thing in the whole room. Yes, it was comfortable, wasn't it? And Burgess was a very valuable woman. Hmm. I miss the fish, too. Such good little things. They never jumped up in your lap to have their ears scratched. <laughs> oh, dear. I hope first impressions won't last. Oh, Vicky, I, I'm reminded of a scene in my parents' living room when I brought one of my first girls home to meet them. Of course, mind you, mind you, it never amounted to anything. <laughs> you don't have to explain, darling, at this late date. <laughs> no, no. But uh, I was both apprehensive and defensive. I so wanted my mother and father to approve. Now, come on, what did they do? Nothing. Very effectively and with great charm, they did nothing and it broke the spell. I learned then that non-intervention in matters romantic is the highest form of diplomacy, and that the course of true love is not banked on the sharp turns. Winthrop that what was most remarkable was that despite his impatience and slovenly technique, Byron's temperament and vigor gave his verse a timbre all its own. Take the, the, the momentum of his anapests, for instance. I enter thy garden of roses. Or better still, the Assyrian came down like the wolf on the fold. And his cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold, and the sheen of their spears was like stars on the sea. Well, bravo, Mrs. Hall. Oh, that was a lovely delivery. You should have gone on the stage. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> David, some sort at one time. You should obey those impulses, dear. Uh, Joseph, uh, do you remember the first time I read that poem to you? Yep. 
I remember. And best of all, of course, is the one that every woman wishes was written for her. She walks in beauty like the night of cloudless climes and starry skies. And all its best of dark and bright meet in her aspect and her eyes. Thus mellowed to that tender light which heaven to gaudy day denies. Oh, what fun! <laughs> what I meant by the companionship I said you needed. Well, Fern, I guess I'm not as pig-headed about poetry as I used to be. Ah, Mrs. Winthrop, you are a remarkable woman. Oh. <laughs> <clears throat> you, you have accomplished the impossible. I have been able to discuss and debate a good many things with my friend here, but every time I mentioned a poet, especially one of the romantics, the wall of indifference became impenetrable. Hey, congratulations, Professor, and welcome to our Association for Incurable Romantics. Well, we are certainly all in tune with each other tonight, aren't we? <laughs> oh, through poetry, we are part of the larger harmonies around us. Poetry helps to brighten up the world for us, doesn't it, Dr. Hall? Yes. Yes, a poet himself once observed that if you take an old, dull, brown penny and rub it vigorously with wet sand, the penny will come out a bright gold color, looking as clean and new as the day it was minted. Poetry has the same effect on words and our world as wet sand on pennies. <laughs> this early on Sunday morning. Shall I get it, Toddy? Uh, no, darling, you must be the paper boy, and I have the change right here. All right. Why, good morning, Professor Warren. Wet sand, old dull brown pennies. Oh, come in, come in. I don't want to be brightened up. Well, good morning, Mrs. Hall. Well, sit down, Professor. You look tired. Well, I ought to be. Spent most of the night swimming the Hellespont. Or <laughs> <laughs> rather, I was Lord Byron. But I ain't Lord Byron, so I turned back. And then I got stuck in miles and miles of wet sand. <laughs> and I woke up and it was 3 a.m. and I couldn't get back to sleep. So I came over to tell you folks that I woke up. Yeah. Well, good morning, Professor. Good morning. Yes. I want to know one thing, Doc. Are you trying to marry me off to that, that, that wet sand? Oh, I'll have to parry that question with another professor. Why do you assume that I should be trying to marry you off to anybody? Doc... What happened to me? Does the brain really soften when the arteries start to harden? <laughs> I guess if I had any blood left in me, I'd be blushing with shame. Well, what for? The only thing worth blushing for. Sheer stupidity. For not recognizing that the spots in front of my eyes were just plain dust without any stars in them. And for leading on a kind and pleasant woman. I can only redeem myself now by saving her from an unhappy life with me. <laughs> Mrs. Winthrop seemed to be extremely happy with you last night. Not when I took my charm off. But, what did you do? I just stopped being Llewellyn Lafayette and became Joe Warren again. First, I told her what I thought of Byron. It was plenty, but not enough. Then I told her I wanted my bad habits back. Old leather chair, for one. And the fish. But what really threw her was when I took out my plug of chewing tobacco. <laughs> you see, I got honest again, Doc. 
And you folks know that I'm a pretty cranky old man when I'm a true self. Oh, we don't know anything of the kind, frankly. I agree with what Mrs. Winthrop said about you. What? Well, you do have poetry in no. how you express it is another matter. But I've learned that if one looks over the wall, however high and insurmountable it may seem, one will always find the garden in the heart of any man. Well, maybe, Doc. We don't all grow roses, do we? Uh. <laughs> Maybe some of us just have a small backyard with one shade tree. And have grown so used to it alone that we don't know how to share it anymore. Well, so long, folks. Goodbye, Professor. Goodbye, Professor. And we're glad you're back. Thanks. Maybe you two didn't have anything to do with saving me and Fern from a fate worse than. But I want to thank you anyway, because I think maybe you did. <laughs> and to quote Byron for the last time, maybe I am ashes where I once was fire. But when you get along toward winter, there's nothing like ashes to keep you from slipping. <laughs> Your policy of non-intervention seems to have been a diplomatic triumph. Yes. Yes, I, I've always believed that the unknown sculptor of the Venus de Milo deliberately left it incomplete. Why? To show the world that the goddess of love recommended a hands-off policy. Uh, <laughs> it might also show why Cupid never wears any clothes. Love should have nothing up its sleeve. <laughs> That was Professor Warren's Romantic Folly from The Halls of Ivy, starring Ronald and Benita Coleman in a broadcast from November 28, 1951. The Halls of Ivy was a show written by Don Quinn, who wrote Fibber McGee and Molly, and it was a spin-off from the Jack Benny program in which the Colemans played Jack Benny's neighbors, long-suffering neighbors, the Halls of Ivy did not shy away from the issues, the tough issues of the early 50s either, including racism and hazing and cheating too. Next, some Thanksgiving leftovers with Crime Photographer. This is Skywave Audio Theater. 
Under ordinary circumstances, Thanksgiving dinner can be chaotic enough. When you're in the newspaper business, the feast can get way off track. Consider the case of Casey, crime photographer, where an ex-con with a fancy coat takes a break from dinner and runs into trouble. Our story is called After Turkey, the Bill. This is Crime Photographer from November 27, 1947. The Anchor Hawking Glass Corporation brings you Crime Photographer. Say, Casey, do you think they'll ever put my statue in the Hall of Fame? What are you famous for, Ethelbert? For 27 straight years, I always got the same part of the turkey. (laughs) That's some kind of a record, ain't it? Well, because you consistently get it in the neck, that might make you notorious, but not really famous. Mm, No, no, Ethelbert. You know, you have to do something really big, you know, something important to deserve a famous name. Like what? Well, like Anchor Hawking, the most famous name in glass. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Tony Marvin. Every week at this time, the Anchor Hawking Glass Corporation of Lancaster, Ohio, and its more than 10,000 employees bring you another adventure of Casey, crime photographer, ace cameraman who covers the crime news of a great city. Written by Alonzo Dean Cole, our adventure for tonight, After Turkey, The Bill. Seven o'clock in the evening, a medium-priced uptown restaurant known as Petrakis's Olympian. At a table for two, a flashily dressed young man pushes aside his empty plate and says to the pretty girl who sits opposite, Hey, that turkey wasn't half bad. <laughs> you didn't leave much of it. Neither did you. Shall I order dessert now? Uh-huh. Hey, waiter. Gus. Okay, Keith. What do you want now, Joe? We're ready for the plum pudding now. Two plums pudding. That's what you want, too, isn't it, Lottie? Yes, and coffee. Same here. Okay, Keith. I don't know why you won't let me do anything for you in a classy way, Lottie. I asked you out for a Thanksgiving spread, and you made me bring you to a cheap place like this. Joe, you can't afford to throw your money away. How do you know what I can afford? I may not have as good a job as my cousin Bird yet, but that doesn't What's mean I... What's Bird got to do with He's it? He's got plenty to do with it. If you didn't have to work today, you'd be out with him now instead of me, I know. Bert isn't working tonight, Joe. He came home before we left there. I could have had dinner with him if I'd wanted. Yeah. Oh, don't be like that, please. Why shouldn't I be? While I was in... While I was away, you and him became awful good friends. We were always friends, the three of us. We grew up on the same block. Yeah, but while I was away, he moved into your old man's room and house so we could be closer friends. Oh, don't start that again tonight. We're out for a pleasant evening, and it has been pleasant so far. Please, Joe. All right. Comes out of dessert. Two plums of pudding. And coffee. You know, when you go out with me, Lottie, you're going to get class whether you think I can afford it or not. I'm going to take you to dance land. I'm going to buy you a whole roll of tickets. Best you'd get out of that tight wide fur as a soda in a movie. All right, that's all. Now, Gus, bring me a check, will you? You're set it, Joe. All right, Joe, since you won't drop the subject, we'll talk about Bird. Swell. He wants me to marry him. Figured that from that dirty double-crosser. He isn't a double-crosser. He knows I've been going with you since we were kids that I've always been crazy about you. 
And while I was taking that bum rap on the reformatory... You didn't he... take a bum rap, Joe. You asked for what you got. All right, so the cops had the goods on me. That gave Ferd no right it to... It gave think... me a right to do a lot of thinking. Mm -hmm. And so you decided a sneaky yellow drip like my cousin is a better bet than me. Huh? I don't think Ferd is sneaky or yellow. No, you don't, huh? No. And I don't think you're a criminal. It's nice of you to say that. I'm not being nice. I'm saying what I believe. If you make me sure you've learned your lesson... I... Yeah? You won't have to worry about me liking Ferd or, or anyone. There's never really been anybody but you, Joe. Only, only I've got to be sure. How do I make you sure, Lottie? Just show me and Dad that you're steady, that's all. And I've been showing you that since I came back. Didn't I get a job right away? Yes, Joe, but, but I don't see how you can afford those two new suits and that overcoat with what you're making. Oh. Oh, I get it. Ferd can buy clothes or take you out, and it's okay, isn't it? He's never had trouble with the cops. But the minute I spend an extra buck, you and your old man figure I've glommed it somewhere. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Your old man especially. Hates my insides. He don't want you to have anything to do with me. If Dad hated you, he wouldn't let you stay at our rooming house. He rents rooms, and I pay for the one I rent. That's business. And to ease your mind about the extra dough I spent, Lottie, I'm a lucky guy with dice and a good pool player. I... Here's your check, kid. Thanks, Gus. I'll pay you so we can get out of here. We're going to dance land. We're... What? Joe? I haven't got my wallet. Oh, you've lost your money? I don't know. Maybe I left it home. Well, phone Dad. He'll look in your room. Well, if he found it, I'd have to go there for it. It's only a few blocks. You stay here, Lottie, while I go oh, and see Oh, you, you don't have to leave the lady here, kid. You're an old customer. I know you come back and pay. Well, thanks, Gus, but I can make better time alone. Hand me my overcoat. Even that racket's the oh, blue in sure, there. Oh, sure, sure. Mmm. Oh, this fancy coat. <laughs> nice and bright with red stripes. You got a class, kid. Yeah, but right now I got no dough. I'll come back as soon as I can, Lottie. I hope you find your money, Yeah, too. I hope so, too. And how. Gee, Casey, it's nice of you and Miss Williams to have Thanksgiving dinner here in the Blue Note with me. Oh, we're nice people, Ethelbert. Well, the very best, true, warm-hearted, and generous to a fault. Pass the salt. Also Paul. honest, kind, and steadfast. Here's the salt and <laughs> pepper. You know, we're really understating our sterling qualities, Annie. We've risen to the heights of magnanimity, whatever that is, by chewing Thanksgiving turkey in this crummy joint we see every day, simply because our little pal here had to work could only get away from his bartending long enough to grab a meal on the house. We hope you appreciate our sacrifice, Ethelbert. Oh, I do. Good. Pardon my reach for the Tabasco. <laughs> to prove your gratitude, Ethelbert, you can pay for our dinners. Yeah, well... Tabasco, uh, any? Huh? Thanks. Say, you've made a splendid suggestion, Casey. Paying our bill will relieve Ethelbert of a small part of his obligation for our company. Yep. Say, come to think of it, you two are working today yourselves. You didn't have time to get a full meal any further away from your office than this crummy joint. Ethelbert, you impugn our motives. He destroys my faith in human nature, Casey. Ah, yes. The spirit of the day is entirely lost upon this lug. Casey, if you'd pay me what you already owed this crummy joint... I'd be only too happy to buy your dinner. <coughs> Get it, Walter! This yeah. guy's too wise for us, Annie. <laughs> oh, I'm afraid so, Casey. Casey, 
Uh, yeah, Walter? You went in the bar phone, you said he did. Oh, nuts. I'm only just finished my turkey. No, this means no dessert, Casey. I'll see what Burke wants. Well, stall him off if you can. Yeah, I'll do my best, Annie. Hello, Grace. <laughs> Hello, Casey speaking. Uh, look, Burke, we haven't finished our dinner yet. Oh, all right, all right. Wait till I get my pencil in. Corner of Whitestone and Evans. Well, what happened there? But is that all? For a run-of-the-mill story like that, we gotta leave our dessert and... Well, okay, Burke, all right, goodbye. Why I stick to this newspaper racket, I don't know. What was it, Casey? All the cri Look, we gotta get out to Whitestone and Evans, Ann. Some mug just held up a filling station there and got away with a couple of hundred bucks. Or Did he shoot anyone? No, no. Huh? Just one of those inside page fillers. Burke says news is light and we gotta cover it. All right, where is Whitestone and Evans? It's way uptown, not far from uh, Petrakis Olympian restaurant. You know, we've eaten there a couple of times. Yeah, I remember. Uh, any description of the holdup guy? Yeah, he wore a flashy blue overcoat with red stripes. See you later, pal. So long, Ethelbert. So long. Say, wait, who's gonna pay for this crummy joint? <laughs> Our story will continue in just a moment. In mansion or cottage, in city or town, Thanksgiving Day is a time for family reunions, feasting, and fun. But through all the gaiety, there runs a deep note of real Thanksgiving for blessings past and present. There's a tacit recognition that a better-fed nation is a stronger, happier nation. And one of the ways in which the American way has made its greatest progress is in the production, preparation, and distribution of food. Now, take the matter of delivering food alone. The great organizations who process and ship us our better foods know that flavor, purity, and freshness are best preserved by clean sanitary glass. And that's why, as you look around the shelves of your food stores, you see that so many famous brands are brought to you in gleaming, protective containers made of glass. Containers that preserve and safeguard flavor and taste while they permit you to see in advance exactly what you're buying. It's noteworthy that many of the leading brands of food of all kinds come to you in anchor glass containers sealed with tamper-proof anchor caps. Products of Anchor Hawking. The most famous name in glass. Now here's what happened, Miss Williams. I'm working the station, see? I'm here in the office when this hold-up guy opens the door and says, give me a dough. He had a gun, of course. Oh, sure, he had a gun. The time was about a uh, quarter past seven. What did you notice and about he... the guy aside from his flashy overcoat? Well, uh, he wore his hat pulled down over his eyes and a, a handkerchief was tied around the lower part of his face. Also, he worked fast. What'd he do? Well, he told me to get into the gents' uh, the restroom there and to keep quiet. He locked the door on me and I, I heard him open up the money drawer there and then I heard him leave the joint. I started pounding on the door, and after a while, I managed to bust out. That was uh, about uh, quarter to eight, and then I phoned the cops. You might have I shoot a picture of that busted door, Sergeant? Go ahead, Casey. Thanks. Y you want a picture of me, too, won't you, Mr. Casey? Huh? Are you? Oh, sure, yeah, the door and you. I'll shoot the door first. <laughs> yeah, it's going to give me old lady a big kick to see me written up in the papers. <laughs> hey, uh... Was this big puddle of grease in front of this door, Jones, when the hold-up guy locked you in? Oh, yeah, yeah. I spilled it there earlier, and I, I didn't have time to clean it up. And the mug must have stepped in it, Casey. Along with the description of his flashy coat I've sent out, 
I included instructions to look for a guy with dirty grease stains on his shoes. Well, the two things together ought to nail him, Sarge. Yeah, I told the Sarge here's something else that ought to nail a guy. What's that? Well, one of the bills he stole out of the money drawer was an old 20 that had been torn in two and kind of stuck together with scotch tape. I I took it in just before the robbery, so I remember it. Looks like you cops have plenty to work on, Sarge. Yeah. Well, we got all there is, Annie. Let's blow out of here and get back to the blue note and get some... Plum pudding and coffee. Ha uh-huh, come on. Hey, 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 ain't you going to take my picture first? Uh, you, oh, yeah. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll kind of stand here by the empty cash drawer hey, and uh, point my finger at it. Yeah, that'll be original. A standard point, pal. Go ahead. Great. All set now. Shoot. Jones. Hey, hey, gosh, I'm getting my picture took. Don't walk in front of the camera. I have just heard what happened to you. About that guy in the blue overcoat which hold you up. Well, I'll tell you all about that later, Gus. So as I get my picture. No, no. I tell you and those cops about it now. You'll tell. Who are you? Oh, I, I am Gus Nikopopoulos. I am waiter in Petrakis Olympian restaurant three blocks from here. And I know who is the kid who robbed my good friend Jones. You know? Yeah, I know as soon as I am told the news about that fancy overcoat. What are you talking about? Yeah, what are you talking about? I tell you cops everything. Even where to find this hold up kid. He tell me he is going with his girl to dance land. You got no right to pull me off that dance floor, copper. You don't believe this waiter, Sergeant Joe, hasn't held up anybody. We're going to see about that. Close the door, will you, Casey? Okay, Sarge. Now... This overcoat we got from the check room, it's yours, isn't it, Bowers? Yeah, that's my coat. And you, Jones, say the guy who stuck you up wore a coat just like it? It's the same coat, Sergeant. You're nuts. A store I bought this blanket at a couple of dozen just like it. Now, take it easy, kid. If your story's okay, we'll check on everyone who owns a coat like this. I'm going to search you. While I'm at it, you can tell us what you did after leaving Petraka's restaurant. After you couldn't find your wallet, I mean. I went straight to my room and house to look for my dough. Finally, I found it in the dresser drawer. And I came straight back to Petrakis for Lottie. That's Miss Newcomb here. The dough's in that wallet you just took out of my pocket. It's about 40 bucks, and it's mine. I didn't steal it. Hey, is that torn 20 in the wallet, Sergeant? No, Jones. Torn 20? I guess he hasn't got a gun on him either, Sergeant. He's clean, Casey. So are his shoes. Grease would show up plain on those light tans. He may have changed shoes and hidden a few things. Yeah. How far is your rooming house from that filling station, kid? Well, I'd say it's we... two blocks away down Evans Street. My father runs it. How long did Joe leave you in Petrakis' while he was finding his money? I... I didn't time it. It wasn't more than 15 minutes, maybe a half an hour. So what? So you had plenty of time to stick up Jones and go to your room before you came back to Petrakis'. All right, if that's the way you dope it, copper, search my room. I'm going to do that little thing, young fella. All of you, let's go. Why have you and Joe come home with all these people and these policemen? Everything's all right, Dad. They've made a mistake about Joe, but it's going to be all right. A mistake about Joe? A big mistake, Mr. Newcomb. I don't understand. I'm Sergeant Healy, 5th Detective District. There was a stick-up a few blocks from here tonight, and uh, Joe Bowers here is under suspicion. A stick-up? Joe? He didn't do it, Dad. I know he didn't. You were with him, Lottie. You must know. Your daughter wasn't with him for a long half hour. Mr. Newcomb... I haven't taken time to get a search warrant, so I'd like your permission to go over Joe's room. Give him a go-ahead. I have. He'll find nothing to tie me up with any heist, John. All right with you, sir? Oh, yes, of course. Thanks. Take me to your room, Bowers. Come on. 
Everybody else stay here with this uniformed officer. Miss Williams and I, I'd like to go with you and Joe, Sarge. Okay, Casey. Well, thanks, Sergeant. My room's on the next floor. It's right up those stairs. Well, lead the way, kid. And don't try anything tricky. Why should I try anything? All you got on me is that a stick-up guy wore an overcoat like mine. And that's all you're gonna get. There's the door of my room, copper. Open it. Make yourself at home. Give me a key. The door isn't locked. I never bother. Hmm. I'll turn on the lights. Now, do your stuff. I will. You won't find anything locked up here. It's I got nothing worth stealing and nothing to hide. Now, if you were going to work on my cousin's room across the hall, you'd need a fistful of keys. He's one of those careful, secretive guys, you know. You got a cousin living across the hall? Yeah, his name's Ferd, a Ferdinand. And is he a crumb? I take it you don't like him. I like him about as much as he likes me, maybe more. Because he's been making a play for my girl. He isn't getting anywhere. How you doing, copper? You see anything of the dough I'm supposed to have stolen or the gat you think I use in that stick-up? Not yet, kid. And you won't. I'm 100% in the clear. Oh, yeah? How did this get under your carpet? What? Casey. A torn $20 bill. Stuck together with scotch tape. I never saw that bill before. And I think Jones will identify it as the one taken from his cash drawer. Wait a minute. There's more dough under this rug, Sarge. A couple of hundred bucks at least. I spotted it, Casey. I don't know how it got there. I didn't pull that stick up. Cut the comedy, Joe. This money nails this you. This is a frame-up. I tell you, it's a frame-up. Where'd frame you hide up. your gun? I never had a gun. I swear I did. Come clean, kid. Where's the gun? Wait a minute. Will you give me a break? Let me think. Let me think a minute. Yeah. Yeah, there's just one mug who'll pull a thing like this. And if you're right, guys, you won't let him get away with it. Question Ferd, Sergeant. Question my cousin Ferd. His room's right across the hall. Might be a good idea, Sergeant. Okay. Let's go over. There's the room. Yes? I, um... I'd like to talk to you a minute. This is the police. Just a second. I was just starting to get ready for bed. I'm Detective Sergeant Healy, young man. This is Miss Williams and, uh, Mr. Casey. How are you? Hello there. What do you want? Let me close this door. Your cousin Joe here has made some accusations against you that it's my duty to investigate. Oh, he has, has he? Do you own an overcoat like Joe's here? Blue with, uh, red stripes? <laughs> an overcoat like that? Or have you ever worn one? I wouldn't wear a zoot blanket like that if you paid me. You say? Yes, I say. Mind if I look around your room? Why? Bert, someone wearing an overcoat like Joe's held up the Whitestone filling station tonight and... What? You know where I bought this coat, Ferd. I think you got one just like it on the QT. I think you slipped my wallet out of my pocket just before I left here with Lottie tonight, so I'd have to leave her and look for it. You were watching the restaurant when I left it. You went to that filling station. Why, you're crazy. Sergeant, you can't believe it. Maybe I don't, but I want to search your room. Oh, wait a minute. Huh? Have you got a search warrant? No. Hey, get out of here. Say. I know my rights. Unlike a certain relative of mine, I've got a clean record. Who are you calling a lousy You, rat? Joe. Why, I'll knock and your teeth out. Cut it up. Cut it, it, both of you. So you don't want me to search your room, hey, young fella? You heard me before, Sergeant. Hey, pal, wait a minute. You're taking the wrong attitude. If you got nothing to hide, this isn't the way to show it. He's got a good reason for saying you can't search, and I'm going to prove it. Keep out of that closet, Joe. Make me if you can. I'll make you your... Hold it first. Let me go! Come on, there, Joe. I'll get a warrant. You won't need a warrant, Sarge. Look there. What? In the back of his closet, covered with other clothes. Oh. An overcoat like yours. Just like mine. And in his pocket, there's a gun. I never saw that coat before. I never saw that gun. Well, somebody did. Come on. I'm taking you both to headquarters. 
Got my closet, Sergeant. I swear I never saw it or that gun before. So you've been saying, Ford. Both of you get into this car. You did this to me, Joe. Sure, I got wise to your frame up, your louse. I threw it right back at you. We'll continue our discussion at the station house. Of course, you'll only hold me long enough to get my testimony. I'll be back home in an hour or so. Maybe. You and uh, Miss Williams tagging along after us, Casey? No, Sarge. Uh, I may give you a buzz later, though. We still have our Thanksgiving dinner to finish. So why don't you two get jobs that won't make you work on holidays? <laughs> why don't you? You mean like Captain Logan? <laughs> I've been thinking about it for the last 25 years. Good night. <laughs> night, Sergeant Neely. Come on, let's get into our car, Casey, and get our stuff to the I'm paper I'm going and... back to that rooming house, Annie. Why? Are you convinced that Cousin Ferd framed Cousin Joe? Well, his attempt to prevent a search of his room didn't look very good. Annie, I'm just thinking. Well, Joe found that overcoat with what might be called surprising ease. Mm -hmm. It's hard to believe that Joe would invite his own arrest in order to frame his cousin. Why, one little slip. The framer, whoever he is, did make a slip, Annie. His plan didn't anticipate a grease puddle. And he had to get rid of a pair of shoes that may walk back and kick him. Well, none of the shoes in Joe's room or in Ferd's had any grease stains on them. No. Sergeant Healy hasn't forgotten those missing shoes, and he'll be back pretty soon to really look for them. Well, I'm going to start looking right now. I'll oh. ring Newcomb's bell. Sometimes I wish your snooping instincts were more restrained, Casey. I'd like a cup of coffee now and... Hi, Mr. Newcomb. Mr. Casey. Yes, may we come in? Of course, but I We thought... didn't go with Sergeant Healy and his prisoners. Uh, wanted to ask, how's your daughter now? She wasn't taking this thing very well when we left. Oh, she feels terrible about it. Miss Williams, perhaps a woman can talk to her better than I can. Will you try to convince her that, that everything will come out all right? Well, I'll gladly try, Mr. Newcomb. She's in our private living room. Yeah, go on in and talk to her alone, Annie. I'll stay here. All right. It... It breaks my heart to see my girl crying, Mr. Casey. She's all I have. She blames herself for what has happened. It isn't her fault that two young fools became so infatuated with her. I knew they hated each other, but I never anticipated anything like this. No. Guess not. Of course, you had some reason for coming back here, Mr. Casey. Yes, I came back to ask your permission. Yes? Uh... I want permission to ask a few personal questions between ourselves and off the record. Very well. You haven't wanted Joe for a son-in-law, have you? In my place, would you? The boy has served a reformatory sentence that, according to my observation, has failed to steady him or improve his sense of values. Mm. Ferd has been Joe's opposite, I imagine. He always seems so. Lottie strikes me as a pretty sensible girl, Mr. Newcomb. Unless one of those fellows confesses he framed the other, or it can be definitely proven, she'll doubt both of them too much to marry either one of them. Yes, I think that's so. And as there'll be no confession or definite proof, things should work out exactly as you planned. As I planned? You're the guy behind this double frame-up. Oh, Mr. Casey. You didn't think I'd be back, did you? You shouldn't have changed back into those comfortable old shoes after Sergeant Healy left here. You did a lousy job of cleaning off that grease. Oh, but... You held up that filling station and framed both the boys to keep your daughter from marrying either one of them. 
I was very foolish, wasn't I? Yes, I think so. Shall I call Sergeant Healy? All right. You can call Sergeant Healy, Mr. Casey. I'm ready to confess. Uh, wait a minute. Wait. Let me take a close look at those shoes. What? The pool of grease in that filling station you heard us talk about wasn't deep enough to reach far above the soles of a shoe. Hey. You greased those shoes yourself. You spread it on so thick it covers the toes and heels. I didn't spread it on. Pal, you're a beautiful liar. And I'm a beautiful dope. You greased those shoes and put them on knowing the cops had come back and spot them. You were willing to take the rap because your kid is in love with one of those punks. You can't prove that. Nobody can. And when I confess, that's all that's needed. You forget. The police lab will compare the grease on these shoes with a filling station grease, and it won't be the same. And then Sergeant Healy will go right back to work on Joe and Ferd. The police laboratory can tell? Yes, definitely, Mr. Newcomb. But if it couldn't, don't you think your confession would be much harder for your daughter to take than the loss of a little rat she thinks she cares for? Well, I... I couldn't bear to see her cry anymore. All I could think of to do was what I tried. You see, I know the guilty boy, Mr. Casey, and she's loved Joe ever since they were children. You know Joe? I found his grease-stained shoes hidden in the cellar tonight. His taste in shoes is like his taste in overcoats, so I could make no mistake. Huh. Well, let's get him and take him to the cops. Later, Mr. Newcomb, your daughter's going to realize that the lowdown she'll get on Joe tonight is a cause for real Thanksgiving. We'll join the crowd of the Blue Note in just a moment. This is Harry Marble to remind you how important the new Anchor Glass one-way no-deposit bottle is to your enjoyment of ale and beer. It's a custom-made container made just for you. No one has used it before and no one ever will use it again. When you're through with it, you dispose of it as you would any other food container. There's no deposit, no fuss or bother. And the new Anchor Glass one-way bottle assures you of sparkling ale and beer without cloudiness and with no foreign flavor or aroma. Beer that's truly brewery bright. Most of the brewers of New England and those who ship ale and beer into New England have adopted this bottle for your protection and added convenience. For the Anchor Glass one-way bottle not only costs the brewer less than any other type of single-trip container, but it also gives you much more for your money. So here's a good rule. When buying ale and beer, always demand a glass bottle. And for extra convenience, demand your favorite brand in the new Anchor Glass one-way no-deposit bottle, a product of Anchor Hocking, the most famous name in glass. So, the shoes fit Joe and he had to wear them, huh, Casey? Mm. They pinched so tight he cracked wide open, Ethelbert. He admitted planting a duplicate of his coat in Ferd's closet, everything. If his scheme had worked, Lottie would never have spoke to Ferd again and to marry Joe. Well, that was Joe's idea, Ethelbert, but it worked out in reverse. Lottie sank into Ferd's manly arms when she heard the lowdown, and she seemed very comfortable. Gee, what some guys will do for love. As my sister Edna says, quote, if love didn't make the world go round, there wouldn't be so much dizziness. Unquote. 
Or so much niceness. Yeah. A grand guy. Lottie's old man. Hmm. Hey, Annie, what's the matter with us? We got plum pudding and coffee still coming to us. How about it, Ethelbert, huh? Oh, it's about time. <laughs> well, what's so funny? <laughs> there isn't any more. <laughs> Crime Photographer, starring Stotts Cotsworth as Casey, is brought to you each Thursday by the Anchor Hawking Glass Corporation, makers of Fire King Oven Glass. Anchor Glass Containers, Anchor Caps and Closures, all products of Anchor Hawking, the most famous name in glass. Photographer is directed by John Dietz. The original music is by Archie Blyer, and the program features Miss Jan Minor as Anne and John Gibson as Ethelbert. Herman Chittison is the Blue Note pianist. If civilization is to survive, we must reaffirm our religious faith. It's up to each of us. Do your part by supporting and attending your church or synagogue. <laughs> This is Tony Marvin saying goodnight for the Anchor Hawking Glass Corporation of Lancaster, Ohio, with offices in all principal cities of the United States and Canada. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. A protective or perhaps overprotective father-in-law getting in deep, too deep, to cover up for his uh, no-good son-in-law. That was Crime Photographer with After Turkey the Bill from November 27, 1947. The solution to the stick-up was clear. As clear as anchor hawking glass. John Steele Adventurer has a story for you next on Skywave Audio Theater. John Steele was a roving adventurer who held various jobs as he went along, and a friend of Steele's told the stories that he had experienced with Steele occasionally putting in appearances from time to time during the series. Tonight, a returning G.I. comes to see one of his army comrades, but uh, not for a happy reunion. He comes to a quiet little town called Plainfield, and Though the war is over for most, it has not quite ended for Ed. This is John Steele, adventurer with The Circle Road, from November 28, 1950. man scarred by bitter memories. Add lonely footsteps in the leaves and the path of decision. That's our story, The Circle Road, taken from the files of John Steele, adventurer. Mm -hmm. 
Hello, friends. This is John Steele. We're back to, back to bring you another story of intense emotional conflict. This week, I have as my guest, Eddie Gard. Now, Eddie's story actually happened two or three years ago. But the way things are today, it might do us all some good if we sat down and just remembered. I was never formally introduced to Eddie. He just stepped out of the night on a lonely station platform and started talking to me. There was something about him that impressed me. So I followed up on him, and here he is to tell you about it himself. I think you'll be interested. Eddie? Some guys, when they got their discharge papers, had it all planned what they were going to do. All the months they'd been sitting in foxholes or rotting in the jungle, they planned what they were going to do when they got back and got out. Open a business, get married, buy a house, all the other stuff you heard a hundred times. Well, I had something I was going to do, but it was none of them. I was going to look up my buddy, Al Corey. I was a long time getting out because of the hospital, and the docs wanted to keep me around for a while to be sure I was all right. But when they did give me the papers, I took the first train up to Plainfield. When I got off, I asked a guy sitting in the car where the Corys lived, and he offered to drive me over. That was the longest part of the five years. I'd ride from the station. Friend of Al's, huh? What? I said you were friend of Al's. Yeah. Met him in the war? We were in the same outfit. Thought I hadn't seen you before. Still in the army, huh? Nah. I thought you couldn't wear the uniform. How much farther is it, anyway? Just up the next block. Oh. Bring back any souvenirs? What? From the war? Oh, no, no, nothing important. I see. Well, here you are. Well, you want to get out? Yeah, yeah. Ought to be somebody home. Thanks. A soldier. Yeah? We got a quiet town. Keep it that way. What do you mean? That's what I said. We expect him almost any day. I'm his mother. Is there anything I can do for you? No, thanks. Al went up to Danbury to see about a job. He didn't plan to stay more than a few days. Well, I'll come back tomorrow. Wait a moment. Yeah? You're Eddie. Huh? You're Eddie, aren't you? Yeah. And I almost let you go away. I felt you were Eddie. Well, come in. Well, I, uh... Please, come in. Jim! Oh, Jim! Oh, it's so good to finally meet you, Eddie. After all we've heard about you, and Al was never sure you were... Jim, come in the living room. What is it, dear? It's Eddie. Who? This is Al's father. Jim, it's Eddie. Well, I'm certainly glad to meet you. Hello, Eddie. Hello. For months we've heard Eddie this, Eddie that. It's years now. Alan will be so happy. You think he will? I can't wait till he gets back. Perhaps you ought to send him a telegram, Jim. I know you'll... Good idea. No, 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 don't do that. I'm sure son would want to... I'll hang around town till he gets back. I want to, uh, you know, give him a surprise. We understand. Of course. Uh, If you'll tell me where I can find a hotel... Hotel? That's simply ridiculous. You're staying here, Eddie. No, I... We wouldn't think of having you stay in a hotel, would we, Jim? Certainly not. Well, I think I'd better go... That may be Alan now. I'll let him in. Well, come on, Eddie. I'll show you... Well, 
What's wrong? Get back. A pain in your chest? Let me see. I'm all right. Get back. Well, what is it? Just stay where you are. And I know you'll want to move in, too, dear. Yes, I do. Isn't it wonderful? Virginia, this is Eddie. Virginia lives across the street. Yeah, I know. Hello. He calls you Ginny. Virginia, you stay for dinner. We'll all have a grand time. You will, won't you? What? Stay for dinner. Yes, I'll stay. Good. Come on, Eddie. Hmm? I'll show you your room. Oh, yeah, yeah. And take your time, Ed. We don't hurry around here. Up this way. Nice place. I'm sure it's better than the last time you and Alan saw each other. Yeah. The door to the right. This is Al's room. We haven't a guest room. Nice. You can share it when Al gets back. I think he'd want it that way. Yeah. Bath is through that door and the closet's over there. Thanks. I'm glad you came. I think Alan has needed you, Eddie. We'll see. He hasn't been the same since he came back. Sometimes we don't understand him anymore. Maybe there's a reason. I know you boys don't like to talk about it, but it seems... I know my son, and you know him. He's been going around in circles ever since he came back. I'm sure you'll be a wonderful help. I will. I'm sure of it. But you're tired. You want to rest up. I'm okay. Here, now, give me your coat and I... What? What's that? Nothing. I didn't mean to let it fall out of your coat. It's a gun, isn't it? Yeah. It's an ugly thing. Kind of pretty when you need it. Neat little revolver. What on earth are you carrying a thing like that around for? It's, uh, it's a souvenir. I, uh, I was going to give it to Al. It isn't loaded, is it? No, just a souvenir. Oh. Well, I'll call you when dinner's ready. Make yourself completely at home. I will. I come back, Al. I come back. served up that night, and the talk around the table was mostly about me and Al and what Al would say when he saw me. He had plenty of guesses, but I knew what he'd say. After dinner, there was still talk, and I couldn't take any more of that, so I got up to go for a walk. Ginny, the girl, offered to go along and show me the sights of the town. That was fine by me. She was Al's girl. And everything's on Main Street, just like any other small town. But the people are nice. You don't take a good picture. What? The one Al had that made you look mousy. It's the only one I had when he left. Besides, maybe I've changed in five or six years. Yeah. Al always said you were going to get married when he came back. You're not, are you? No. Why not? Didn't work out. That's no answer. It was different. Something had changed, that's all. Somebody else? I don't know. No, oh, come on. What? This looks good enough. Don't you want to walk? Yeah, maybe. Later. Let's have a drink. I don't know about this place. I've never been inside. It's a bar, isn't it? Come on. All right, Ed. Yes, sir, would it be? A double... Uh, what do you have, Jack? Nothing, thanks. A double rye, huh? Right away. I always wondered what this place looked like inside. Well, now you can say you know. Hey, soldier, old soldier. Still fighting the war for us? Beat it. You know, I was going to fight. Look, you want to get hurt? Ed. 
Well, you know best. Oh, <laughs> almost missed the house. I'll, uh, I'll get the garage door. No, no. We'll just leave it out here overnight. Uh, just one thing, Eddie. Yeah? Uh, don't mention nothing about this to Mother. I told her if you'd gone out without any money and were, were stuck downtown with a bill you couldn't pay. Okay? Sure. Sure. Certain things we men learn it's better to keep from the women, huh? Yeah. Mr. Corey, uh... Yes, Eddie? I, uh... I just want to say that I'm, uh... I'm sorry. Now, don't worry about it, Eddie. Take a little time, but you'll get back on your feet again. I know you will. Yeah. Oh, good night, Mr. Corey. Good night, son. into the room, Al's room, and for the first time since it happened, I felt something good for somebody. I walked around the room looking at his things. A baseball hanging on the wall, somebody had written on it, no hit, no run game, pitched by Al Corey. Picture of a football team with Al in the middle, holding a football, and underneath it, Plainfield High School, 1936, Group 3 champion. Mrs. Corey left a pair of pajamas on the chair and a glass of milk and some crackers on the table. This was the way to live. It wasn't until I sat down on the bed and took the harness off my leg that it all came back. I shoved the harness under the bed and pulled the blankets up to my chin, but the room was cold and I was shivering. I lay there telling myself it couldn't happen again. I'd almost gone soft and it couldn't happen again. I must have fallen asleep as I remember dreaming about running and jumping and playing football. Next thing I knew, somebody was standing in the room and talking to me. My goodness, you like a cold room. It must be 20 below in here. Huh? Wait till I set this down. I'll close the window. I guess all boys are alive. Did you have enough blankets? What time is it? Eleven o'clock. I thought Al I... back yet? No. I thought I'd better wake you if you're going to the game. What? Dad went hunting this morning. He said you'd probably go to the game. Oh. Now you get up and wash your face. I brought you your breakfast. Mrs. Corey, I... I don't spoil my men all week long, but this is their day. Come on now. Get up. Uh, will you go on downstairs? I'll get up. I was going to stay with you while you ate. Oh. Do you mind? No. That's good. Now, come on. Get up. Um, I'll, uh, I'll eat. And I'll wash later. Army certainly taught you boys bad habits. <laughs> Here, let me fix that pillow behind you. Hey, that's better. Now, can you balance this on your lap? Yeah. Did Dad bring you enough money last night? What? Your bill downtown. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure, he brought enough. That's good. Did you have a good time? Yeah. Sure? Yeah, why? I don't know. The way you're acting this morning. And then something Virginia said. What about Virginia? She said she didn't think you'd be staying long. Why didn't she say that? This morning. What else did she say? Nothing. Did she say anything about why I came back? No. You're not eating, Eddie. Did I say something that upset you? Mrs. Corey, I gotta That's get... so formal. Why don't you call me mother? No. What's the matter, Eddie? Get out of here, will you? 
Get out of here and leave me alone. All right, Eddie, if that's what you want. We're happy to have you here. We know you can help all of us by helping Alan. He needs it. What about me? What about me? Yes? I want to talk to you. I'm sorry, Ed. I don't want to talk to you. Well, that's too bad. You're gone. That's the way you do it in the Army. Yeah, come to think of it, it is. Well, this is Plainfield. Will you please leave me? Shut up. Go on and then sit down. I will not. Come on. Whatever you want to say, please say it and get out. I'll leave when I'm through. That's something in your favor. Sit down. Yes, Sergeant. What's the idea of poking your nose in somebody else's business? What do you mean? You know what I mean. You talked to Mrs. Corey this morning. Is that against the law? You talked to her about me. I only said I thought you'd be leaving, sir. What else did you say to her? Nothing. You told her about last night. I did not. You're lying. You told her why I came back to Plainfield. Didn't you? Why did you come back here? That's my business. I don't think it is. Yeah, you wouldn't understand. Maybe. Look, Ed. I'm awfully sorry for you with your maid. Don't be. I'm afraid of you, too. Afraid? He hit that man at the bar last night. He had it coming. He wanted to buy you a drink. Oh, he stared I know what he said, and he was right. The war is over. I don't know why you came back to see Al, but I'm afraid. Why? Something in you. Vicious, I don't know. You're crazy. I... I don't want you to be afraid of me. I don't want to be. What's between Al and myself has nothing to do with you and me. I think it has. No, it hasn't. You and me were right here today. Al, well, I'm having back during the war. Then leave it there. I can't. I see. Now, Ginny. I think you'd better go. Why? You're different, Ed. You're not like us. You don't belong in Plainfield or any other town like it. What? I don't know whether the war made you this way or if you were like this before. What but way? Mean and ugly. Sorry, Ed. I didn't want to say that. Please go. I told you a few things. I said last night it was good to talk to somebody that wasn't there, didn't know what it was all about. Well, I've changed my mind. Oh, sure, the war was tough on you. You give up a couple of gallons of gas, a pint of heavy cream. How do you know what it feels like to fight when you don't even know what you're fighting for? To be cold and hungry with your clothes crawling with lice and your food like a, like a cold baseball in your stomach, and you fight anyway. How do you know what it feels like to have your legs shot off and all because a lousy yellow rat was supposed to cover you, but he didn't because he didn't have the guts. Sure, I'll go. And glad to. I don't know how long or how far I walked. An hour, five hours, I don't know. All the time I could hear her saying it over and over again. Mean and ugly, mean and ugly. Me? I passed the football field and I could hear the crowd yelling in the distance. Somebody stopped me, a cop, I don't know, asked me if I wanted to see the game. 
Away from the field, the streets were empty, and the leaves said the words under my feet, mean and ugly, mean and ugly. Me. Ginny said I didn't belong in Plainfield. Maybe she was right, I didn't know. A gang of kids went down the street in a Model T singing high school songs, and I knew the game was over. The air had turned cold, and my leg was beginning to hurt. Maybe she was right. When I got back to the Corys, the house was empty. There was a note on the hall table from Mrs. Corey saying that she'd be back in time to get dinner. I went upstairs to my room, Al's room, and I got my toothbrush out of the bathroom, shirt off the chair, and put him in the musette bag. I started writing him a note, then I heard the front door open in his voice. Mom? Mom? The gun under my jacket was pressing hard against Mom? my ribs. I forgot Jimmy. Hey, forgot his everybody? mother and father. Forgot everything but him. What? I took the gun out, twirled the chamber, and started down the stairs. My leg ached. And you, Mom? No, Al, it's me. Hey. Yeah. I come back, Al. I come back. What took you so long? I've been in the hospital. You all right now? Oh, yeah. Glad you're back on your feet. <laughs> they aren't both mine. Oh. They uh, made me a leg. Same almost as good as new. Except I can't run. Won't be able to teach my kid how to play football. Can't even hunt. I'm sorry, Ed. Yeah, it's too bad. Used to be pretty good at football. Been a long time, hasn't it, Al? Yeah. I remember the last time I saw you. All I could see was the seat of your pants. Funniest thing I ever saw. It's not the way I like to remember it, buddy. Guess not. I hear you had a pretty tough time settling down. Kind of going around in circles. Yeah. That's funny. You got a lot of things here most guys don't have. Good home. Good mother, father. Nice girl across the street should have been easy. It's too bad. Look, Ed, everyone has his own problem. You've been my biggest one. Yeah? I know if you were alive, someday you were going to come back. I couldn't get straightened out until this was settled one way or another. Then you ought to be glad to see me. I think I am. <laughs> oh, I, I know what you think of me. Probably you're right. But I can say I was more worried about what would happen to Mother and Dad when you came back than I was about me. I mean it. Now that you're here, I'm glad you are. You're bluffing. No. I don't know what happened to me that day. Had all I could take, I guess, and I ran. But I'm not scared now. You're not? No, Ed. I don't think you know what it is to be afraid. You're tough. You can take it. I'm tough. 
You're not. No. I'm sorry you were hurting. Sorry. Always thought a lot about you. As hard as you were, there was just nothing mean about you. Mean? Yeah. I didn't like being the guy who let you down. Maybe that wasn't your fault. Look, kid, I'm getting out of here. Just stand where you are and don't say a word, because I might change my mind. Ed, Shut you... up. Just do me one favor, will you? You see your mother and father. Tell them the next time they raise a son, teach him how to be a man. Don't let him find out for himself. Goodbye, Al. Excuse me, mister. Is this aside from New York? That's right. What's the next train? Be along in a minute. Take it windows closed. You can get one on the train. Thanks. 101st Infantry, hmm? Yeah. Your outfit had a tough time. Yeah. You from around here? No. Nice town, Plainsville. Well, here she comes. Let me give you a hand. I got it. Calling you? Huh? Eddie! Oh, Eddie, I've been looking all over for you. Jenny. I'm coming with you. No. Al told me what you did. I'm coming with you. No, baby. I was wrong, Eddie. I was so wrong. No, no, you were right. I got a lot to learn about being a civilian. I'll help you. I'm not even sure it'll work. This is something I gotta do alone. Coming, soldier? Yep. I'll wait for you, Eddie. Well, that's up to you, baby. I'll wait for you. Then I'll be back. Jenny, did you hear me? I'll be back. The Circle Road, the story of a man who learned that the handbook of battle is not the manual of peace. Well, friends, if you liked Eddie's story, why not come back again next week? I'll have the story of a man who sacrificed his integrity among men for a mission of honor. I like to call it Cargo X. So until next week, this is John Steele saying a life of adventure is yours for the asking, wherever you find it. Only don't look for it. It may find you. Well, goodbye and good hunting. John Steele Adventurer is produced by Robert Monroe, written and directed by Elliot Drake. John Larkin was heard as Eddie. Also in our cast were Jim Bowles, Joyce Gordon, Abby Lewis, and Ross Martin. John Steele is played by Don Douglas. 
Musical effects were created by Doc Whipple, and your announcer is Ted Melly. Remember, next week, Mutual presents Cargo X, another story of suspense and action from the files of John Steele, adventurer. This program came from New York. Follow clues down Mutual's mystery lane to further thrills and chills. Along the Sunday Avenue of Mystery and Suspense are Martin Kane, the two-fisted gumshoe, the shadow in a cloak of invisibility, true detective mysteries with real-life cases, and Nick Carter, master detective. Weekdays, hear I Love a Mystery, every night over most of these same stations, with the fabulous adventurers Jack, Doc, and Reggie in eerie investigations. Remember, all roads lead to Mutual when you travel the mystery trail, where the announcer says, This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. A story about coming back from the war, but never quite coming home. That was John Steele Adventurer with The Circle Road from November 28, 1950. The story was about a World War II veteran, and at the time of the broadcast, the country was embroiled in the Korean War. Next up, Escape. This is Skywave Audio Theater. Because it usually didn't have a sponsor, Escape was moved around the network broadcast schedule, which was never a promising thing for getting ratings. And the budget was not the highest. But Escape was still one of the best-written, best-produced drama anthologies in radio. One of the most durable, too. And it covered a lot of geography. Now, travel with a doctor on his way from Delhi to Malaysia, where two things are necessary to hold back an epidemic. Doctors and serum, both of which are in peril. This is Funeral Fires, Escape from November 26, 1950. You, finding life rather dull, dreaming again of exotic places, wishing you were somewhere else, we offer you Escape. Escape with us now to Malaya, where a young doctor and a beautiful girl are faced with the horrors of plague and the bloody holocaust of a native revolt, as Charles Israel tells it in Funeral Fires. Burning the dead. The column of flames sucked up against the night sky of the river town, leaned against it, held. And from far away, the dirge, the Malays mourning their dead. Then, drifting down to the landing where I stood, somehow the word, always the word in Malay and Chinese and English, plague. Plague had come to Lapore. Plague. That's why I was here. All the way from Delhi, 
I'd come. My plague serum and I. The police lieutenant who met me at the rickety little wharf had been there for five days already. He was very young, and he didn't like his job. Pretty awful show, this. Don't you think so, sir? And it's going to get worse. You've brought serum, sir. That should do the trick. It should, but it's not that easy. Every time a native sees a needle, he takes off for the hills, thinks it's something to kill him quicker. Now, not these natives, sir. There was a plague epidemic here about 15 years ago. Serum wiped it out. The natives call it foreign devil medicine, but they respect it. That's good. It'll save us some time. Oh, there'll be a boy here in a minute for your luggage. Good. I'm glad you've finally arrived, sir. It's good to have a doctor here. Well, they told me there was a doctor here, a Dr. Grimes. Well, it says doctor on his sign, sir. Fine. I need his help. I wouldn't count on it, sir. Why not? You'll see, sir. What are you talking about? Wait till you meet Dr. Grimes. If you want a bit of free advice, sir, I'd rely more on Miss Randall. Miss Randall? Who's she? An American, sir. An American? Well, what's she doing here? I don't know, sir, but she walked in and took over the whole ruddy show. Converted an old warehouse into a hospital. Been slaving day and night. Wonderful, sir. Lieutenant! Someone's calling you, Lieutenant. He'll find me. Who? Compatriot of yours. Oh, there you are, Lieutenant. I've looked all over town for you. Now I'd like to know who's allowed all this. You responsible for this, Lieutenant? Responsible for what, Mr. Ford? For this here funeral business. Every native in Lepore down there by that fire. Is there anything wrong with that, Mr. Ford? I'll tell the world there's something wrong. My whole night, every last man, down there singing and carrying on. I'm afraid I can't stop them, Mr. Ford. You'd better stop them, Lieutenant. Get down there and send them back on the job. He can't stop them, Ford. Huh? Who are you? My name is Donovan, Dr. Mark Donovan. So your name is Donovan. So that don't give you a right to... Hey, wait a minute. Holy smoke, man. You're an American. That's right. Well, now, that's different. Say cans, Doc. Holy smoke. Why didn't you say so? Ford is my moniker. That name's as American as the hole in the lifesaver. Oscar R. Ford, Cleveland, Ohio. Ever been to Cleveland, Doc? What are you doing in Lepore, Ford? Rubber. On a rubber plantation near here. Best little outfit in the whole shebang. And you know why, Doc? Because it's run by an American, that's why. Efficiency. Say, uh, say, Doc, you'll get my men back to work, won't you? I'm here to wipe out plague in Lepore, Ford. Oh, sure, Doc. That's what I mean. Wipe out the plague. We'll show them, Doc. And if you need help, you can count on Oscar R. Ford. Remember that, Doc. Yeah. I'll call you when I need you. Uh, Lieutenant? Uh, yes, sir? I'll be going over to the hospital. Right, sir. Straight down this road, sir. You can't miss it. Thanks. I'll let you know when we're ready to set up our serum station. Right you are, sir. I left him standing there with Ford and walked through the town. Everywhere I turned, I brushed against death. It got into my nostrils, crept into the lining of my clothes. The deserted streets shrieked of it. So did a ravaged face seen through the door of a straw hut. Plague. And only the serum I'd brought with me could stop it. I walked into the warehouse that had been converted into a hospital. Rows of people lying on the wooden floor, hundreds of them, the dying and the dead. 
Then I saw her. The lieutenant's girl, on her knees beside a dying man. She looked up at me. Hand me that cloth, please. Oh, uh, this one? No, not that one. There, in the basin. Bring out the water first. Miss Randall? Yes? What do you want? My name is Mark Donovan. I've just come in from Delhi. That's fine. I'm busy. I'm a doctor. Did you bring the serum with you? Yes. Well, get it and get to work. Miss Randall, I'm in charge here now. I'm sorry. It's just that I'm tired. I know. I, uh, I need your help. We're going to set up a serum station. It's about time. When do we start? As soon as we can get organized. Good. Oh, by the way, Miss Randall, is Dr. Grimes around? The rum pot? The, the resident medical officer. Look, if you want to find Grimes, there's only one gin parlor in Lapore. They call it the Nine Dragons. He'll be there. Thanks. Miss Randall? Yes? Get yourself some sleep, huh? Sure, Doctor. As soon as they stop dying. Hey, you there, boy. You seen Dr. Grimes? Dr. Grimes, sir, you will find him there, sir, at the corner table. Oh, thanks. You're Dr. Grimes? Uh, what if I am? Who wants to know? I'm Dr. Mark Donovan, World Health Organization. I just got in from Delhi. Uh, hey, well, now, that's a fancy introduction, laddie. It's worth the drink to you. Here, laddie. Kind drink up. No, thanks. Ah, dinner be that way, laddie. Take it. No, thanks. Take the glass, laddie. Take it. We'll have a wee toast. Ha, that'll be the ticket. Ha, wee toast. I said no. Hey, you didn't have to knock the drink from my hand, laddie. Dr. Grimes, how soon can you be ready to give plague injections? Ah, there's no blasted plague here, young man. Get drunk. I say there's no plague here. No plague, you hear? That's what I say, and that's what I mean. Come on, Grimes, we'll get some coffee. Ah, you're insolent, young man. I'm in charge here. Let's go, Grimes. Ah, you've come to send a bad report on me, have you not? Aye. Well, you'll not do it. I said come on. Aye. I'm coming, young man. I'm coming. Uh, put that knife away. Oh, I'm coming right at you, laddie. I told you to put that knife away. Get up. Yeah, you, you won't send a, a, a bad report to me now, will you, laddie? No, you tell me you won't. Get up. Yeah, uh, Now, what is it you want from me, laddie? Meet me at the hospital in one hour. We're going to begin shooting serum. Uh, yeah, anything you say, laddie, and if you please, no bad report. Just be there. Uh, I, I'll be there. I looked back at him. He was standing propped up against the table, staring at me. 
And he was grinning like a great evil cat. Grinning. I walked through the swinging doors into the street. Outside was silence. The cool silence just before dawn. I stood there, letting it surround me. Don't be rude, Mr. Wu. He stood barring my way. On his shoulder was perched a tiny black monkey. The Chinese leaned his face close to mine. Please to talk with me. And if you are kind, also with Mr. Wu. Uh, another time, huh? I I'm in a big hurry. Mr. Wu is my greatest friend, the ruler of King Tosh Petshap. I am Kung. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, Please. but... No, Dr. Donovan. It is to save your life that I desire to enter into conversation. How do you know my name? I know many things. Please to talk with me. All right. But make it quick. To waste time is not Conte's wish. To hold time is his greatest ambition. Is it not, Mr. Wu? Go ahead, Mr. Kung. My father was Chinese. My mother, Malay. What the Chinese and love poor choose not to tell, I learn from the family of my mother. Look, Mr. Kung. If you value your life, leave La Pour. Leave at once. What are you talking about? Why should I leave? What a pity, Doctor. Mr. Wu says he's tired. Uh, look, ju just a minute, Mr. Kung. We haven't finished talking yet. Another time, other doctor. Mr. Wu says he must go now. Say goodbye, Mr. Wu. <laughs> He backed away from me, nodding and bowing, and the monkey on his shoulder doing the same. I turned and started for the hotel. Dawn was coming. The funeral fires were spent, the dirges finished, the Malays gone back to their huts to sleep. It was almost daylight when I climbed the stairs and walked down the hall to my room. For you. Where have you been? What are you doing here, Miss Randall? I'm here. That's enough. I asked you why you're here. To help with the serum. You're going to need help, aren't you? Yes. Good. Well, do we get the serum? Remind me to ask you a question, Miss Randall. Like what? Like what brought you to Lapore? I'll remind you. The serum, Doctor. All right. Here in this closet. I... Yes? Doctor, what's the matter? Doctor. What? I said, what's the matter with you? The, the, the serum. What about it? It's been stolen. Escape under the direction of Norman MacDonald returns in just a moment. The new CBS comedy star, Frank Fontaine, will pay a visit to CBS's Jack Benny this evening. The young comedian who celebrated for his impression of a sweepstakes winner and for his other impressions will be given a royal welcome, even though Jack believes in buying a sweepstakes ticket only when a single horse is in the race. Mary, Dennis, Don, Phil, and Rochester will be on hand, too. So join the fun that only the Jack Benny Show can bring tonight on CBS. And now, back to Escape. 
When they sent me from Delhi to Lepore, they said it was plague, and they said it was bad. Now I was here, and it was the way they said it would be, plague and bad. Only from here on, it was going to be worse, because the serum I'd brought with me was gone. Someone had stolen it from the closet where I'd locked it. Someone who wanted to keep the plague in Lepore. I stood there in my hotel room, staring into the empty closet. How long are you going to stand there, Doctor? I can't believe it. Face it, there's no serum. Well, it was there. I put it there myself, right next to that bromoquinine. Cold tablets won't stop a plague, Doctor. I said I put it there. I heard you, but I don't have to believe you. I don't care what you believe. Maybe you sold the serum before you ever came to Lepore. Maybe you're trying to cover yourself. Sold it? Why would I want to do that? How do I know why you'd sell it? You would have an angle. All right, you've said what you wanted to say. Get out. All right, I'm going. Uh, wait a minute. I want to ask you a question. And I'll give you an answer. The police, Lieutenant. That's where I'm going. How long were you in my room before I got here? I'm going to the police, Doctor. How long were you here? You won't get out of it. How long? I don't know. Fifteen minutes, maybe twenty. Not very long. Long enough to take the serum yourself. Sure. I was here that long. Long enough to hide it and then come back here. You're forgetting something. Like what? I had no reason to take it. You've got a reason. Like what? What are you doing in Lepore? Maybe I write books. Maybe a steel serum. You'd better get that serum back, Doctor. There are people dying. It's your fault. Get it back. Goodbye, Doctor. And I had a couple of things to do. Ask the lieutenant to organize a search patrol... Cable Delhi for more serum. Four days it would take to get here. Four days of raging death. And because I had no serum, people would die before the sun went down. People didn't have to die. And Miss Randall had said it. It was my fault. All right, just a minute. Master, you no move. You listen. Who are you? Number one boy in shop of one Kong Te. Kong Te. Oh, the, the old man with the monkey? That same, Kong Te. All right. You got a message? What is it? Kong Te say, Master Fire pay five dollars. Here, message. Here. Now, what's the message? Kong Te say, he knew Master have trouble. Kong Te say, Master, come see him chop chop. No come chop chop, too late. Is that all? Him say, come chop chop. Chop chop, Master. Anything was worth a try, I found Kung Tae's pet shop in a narrow, musty street just off the marketplace. It wasn't difficult to pick out because there was a crowd jammed around the door. Holding them back were two melee police. I pushed through the crowd and up to the open door. Oh, good morning, sir. I didn't expect to see you here. What's all this about, Lieutenant? You haven't heard, sir? Heard what? About the unpleasantness. What unpleasantness? What are you trying to tell me? You'd better come inside with me, sir. All right. this unpleasantness you're talking about? Right over there, sir. In the corner. Kung Tay. What happened, Lieutenant? Murder. A large-caliber bullet, I'd say. Probably a forty-five. You want to examine him, sir? No, that won't be necessary. Quite right, sir. You know, I can't understand it. What? You see, sir, besides yourself, 
There are only three foreigners in that pool. Miss Randall, Mr. Ford, and Dr. Gray. Well? Well, that's it, sir. Why should one of them want to kill the old man? Uh, how do you know it was one of them? The weapon. Native skill with a knife for a rope. Mostly a rope. Never with a gun. Yes, that's interesting, Lieutenant. And there's something else I don't think natives do. What's that, sir? Steel serum. I meant to ask you about the serum, sir. Miss Randall mentioned it to me. There's going to be trouble, sir. With Miss Randall? With the native, sir. I told you they were waiting for medicine. And somehow it's gotten out of them. They know you don't have the serum. They're right, Lieutenant. It's been stolen. Look, I want all the foreigners in the poor at your office an hour from now. Can you arrange it? Yes, sir. You think there's some connection? Between the murder and the serum? Maybe. Can you have them there? If you don't mind my saying so, this sounds like a police matter. You're wrong, Lieutenant. It's medical. Strictly medical. I don't understand, sir. You will. Just get those people to your office, hmm? Yes, sir. Miss Randall, Mr. Ford, and Dr. Grimes. You forgot somebody, Lieutenant. Who, sir? You. Me, sir? Quite right. I forgot, sir. I turned and walked out of the shop into the street. I had trouble getting through the crowd. It didn't mean much when somebody poked an elbow in my face. That could have been an accident. But not the man who jumped out in front of me and spat on the ground at my feet. <laughs> this was no accident. This was meant for me. All at once, they were silent, watching me. Then from the hills outside the town, the sound of a drum, slow, ominous. And from somewhere in Lepore itself, the answer, urgent, threatening. Finally, I understood. It had gotten out to the natives. Somehow the people had found out that I had lost the serum, and in their minds I was the medicine man who had failed, the man who was making them die. My plan for getting the serum back had to work. I picked up my medical bag from the hotel, hurried to the lieutenant's office, a one-room wooden shack near the edge of town. I had things almost set up when the first person arrived. It was Miss Randall. What's all this about? What are you trying to do? It'll take a little while, Miss Randall. Sit down. I don't want to sit down. She stood and watched me take things out of my bag and place them on the table. The hypodermic syringes, needles, alcohol, and finally the little vial of colorless liquid. Then Dr. Grimes came in. Cold, sober. He walked across the room, sat down where he could look at me. The natives know something, laddie. Something you didn't want them to know. They are heading this way. Hey. Take your hands off! I had a little trouble with this one, sir. And you're gonna have more, so help me. Sit down, Ford. Why, you little two-bit quack, I... I said sit down! Well... That's better. Well, Levy, you've got us all here. Now perhaps you'll tell us why. There is an epidemic on. I'm going to inoculate all of you with plague serum. What are you talking about? You haven't got any serum. Just this one vial from my bag, Miss Randall. The rest was stolen. All right, Ford, you first. Roll up your sleeve. Yes. That's right. Now. <coughs> no, it wasn't that bad, Ford. All right, now, you, Miss Randall. You're gentle, Doctor. Grimes? Aye, laddie, get it over with. Yeah. 
Okay, Doc. Now, we've had the shots. How'd it go now? Now, uh, just a minute. Nobody leaves here. Oh, what? Oh, wait already. a minute. I said nobody leaves here. Lieutenant, stand by the door. Mm, yes, sir. Yeah, what's the big idea? This morning, somebody stole plague serum from my room. I want that serum back. That's your worry, Doctor. Yeah. My worry and yours now. All of you. Because one of you took that serum. You're off your rocker, Doc. Maybe you took it, Ford. You got a rubber plantation. You could shoot your workers full of serum. Well, what would I want to do that for? Oh, efficiency, Ford. The workers on the other plantations would die, and you'd have the field to yourself. Uh, or you, Grimes. You were afraid I'd tell you I had office about you. I know you're wrong, laddie. You've had it pretty good till now, haven't you? No work, plenty of gin. You were afraid I'd spoil it. So you thought you'd make it look bad for me, too. No, no, laddie, you've got it wrong. All right, Doc, you've got us here. Now what are you going to do? <laughs> I've already done it. You've done what? That injection I gave all of you. It wasn't serum. That was plague bacteria. Straight plague. So, uh, what does that mean, Doc? Well, it means I have to get that serum within an hour. Otherwise, every one of you is going to get plague. That's right. You think about it. Plague. Pain a human can't stand. Then when you get used to it, you die. Each one of you. This is ridiculous. You're going to die, all of you, because there's no serum. Serum would save you. Serum I haven't got. Look, doctor. Those sick people at the hospital. They need me. Let me go there. You forget, Miss Randall. You're sick, too. You've got plague. You're going to die. I'm not forgetting. Let me go to the hospital, doctor. Please. Now, what could you do there? Put cold towels on their heads? It doesn't help. It doesn't help much. I know that. They die just the same. But at least they're comfortable. Don't do it, doc. Don't let her go. It ain't right. If she goes, we all go. You keep out of this, doctor. Please. I can't, Miss Randall. Mr. Ford says it wouldn't be right to let you go. Keep her here, Doc. Here with the rest of us. I told you to keep out of it. What a weasel on me, don't you? You're a fool. Fat and a fool. Yeah. I'd be a fool to let you get out of here. Doctor? You'll stay here, Miss Randall. But there's no point in... You heard what the doc says? Stay here. This is your fault, Ford. Pap. It's all your fault. The whole thing... I said shut up! You're going to say something, Miss Randall? I've got nothing to say. All right. We'll wait. We'll wait here as long as... Hey, there's rocks, ladies. They're throwing rocks. Ford, what do you want? How do you feel? I... I feel all right. That's funny. You're sweating. But if you say you feel all right, fine. Because in a little while, you won't feel so good. And you won't feel anything. You'll be dead. Have anything to tell me, Ford? All right. We'll wait. Doctor. Uh-huh. I 
nothing. You're going to die, Miss Randall. I don't Randall. want to die. Don't let me die. Where's the serum? Make him tell. Make Ford tell where it is. He's crazy. Tell him. Tell him how you paid me to steal it. Don't listen to her. Tell him, Ford. You wanted the serum for your own workers. You killed Kungtain because he found out. You. Why? Don't go, Ford. Keep him covered, Lieutenant. All right, Ford, where's that serum? How do you like that? Trust the day. The serum, Ford, where is it? It's in my house, the living room. Under the floorboard. Get, get a doctor. I don't want to die. Please, please. Lieutenant, you speak, Millay. Yes, sir. Get out there and tell those people they'll have serum in 30 minutes. Right, sir. Pleasure. And take these two with you. Aye, oh. you're a hard one, laddie. You ready for work, Grimes? Hey, but, but laddie, you, you'll be taking care of me first, will you not? Oh, you're taken care of, Grimes. Aye, I'm taken care of. You fill me full of plague. Oh, not plague. Water. <laughs> water? Yeah, water. Don't worry, it was distilled. Under the direction of Norman MacDonald, Escape has brought you Funeral Fires by Charles Israel. Lamont Johnson was starred as Mark, with Georgia Ellis as the girl Alice. Featured in the cast were Don Diamond, Ben Wright, Wilms Herbert, and Leon Lontock. The special music for Escape was composed and conducted by Ivan Dittmars. Next week, Escape with us to the barren wastes of northern Mexico and the story of a million dollars in cash to be had for the asking if you live, as Anthony Ellis tells it in his exciting story, This Side of Nowhere. Wouldn't you like to help wipe out tuberculosis? Wouldn't you like to help those now afflicted with the dread disease and prevent others from getting it? All the wonderful work carried on by the National Tuberculosis Association is financed by the sale of the Christmas seals you buy each year. So don't forget, help to fight TB by putting a Christmas seal on every letter you write. Escape is one of the fine programs the CBS brings you every Sunday afternoon. On most of these same stations, you can also hear the New York Philharmonic Symphony, the Symphonette, the Arthur Godfrey Digest, the new Meet Frank Sinatra show, Earn Your Vacation, and Make Believe Town. Stay tuned now for Make Believe Town, which follows immediately on most of these same CBS stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking. This is CBS, where you spend an hour with Frank Sinatra every Sunday afternoon on the Columbia Broadcasting System. A daring gamble, a bluff to get back the precious plague serum, injecting an element of suspense in a story about selfish motives during a plague. That was Funeral Fires, Escape from November 26, 1950. We'll round it out with science fiction next from Dimension X. This is Skywave Audio Theater. Mason Adams was one of those all-purpose radio and TV actors 
1945, he played the evil Atom Man in The Adventures of Superman. And from 1977 to 82, he was managing editor Charlie Hume on the TV series Lou Grant. In between were a lot of varied radio roles. Tonight we find him in another dimension, Dimension X. In the beginning, there was Jordan, a plan, and then the ship. Meet two visitors who take a chance to get the story of how it all came to be and where it might go. And what about the strange, beast-like creatures on the surface? Our story is Universe, and it comes from Dimension X of November 26, 1950. Adventures in Time and Space, transcribed in future tense. Dimension X, X, X. In the beginning, there was Jordan, thinking his lonely thoughts. Out of the loneliness came a longing. Out of the longing came a vision. Out of the dream came a planning. And out of the planning came decision. Jordan's hand was lifted, and the ship was born. You, look out! Are you all right? Yes, it missed me. What was it? A mutant with a slingshot. I think it dashed down that passageway. You want to go after it? We'd never catch it, Alan. It's probably 12 decks above us by now. I didn't think they ever came down this far. Patrols usually get them before they reach this level. Uh, they get more daring with each generation. This one looked like a female. Male or female, it might have killed us. I told you this trip was pure foolishness. Climbing 24 deck levels to hear a crazy old man rave. We're almost there now. Compartment X-15, level 24. This is the place. This area smells as if it hadn't been visited by a sanitation crew for generations. Part of the ship is almost deserted. Yes? This is the compartment of John the Witness. Who are you? My name is Hugh Hoyland. I'm a cadet from the scientist barracks. This is my friend, Alan Mahoney. What do you want of John the Witness? Only to talk. Are you a believer in Jordan? Naturally. I have heard that there are those among the younger scientists who doubt the word of Jordan. To doubt is death. We're not heretics. Oh. Enter. I have brought a gift of tobacco grown on the richest level. It smells good. I assure you it's the best. Wait here. What a rat's nest. What the devil do you think he can tell you? I don't know. Now hush. Well? You are John the Witness? I am. Good eating to you. I am Hugh Hoyland. This is my friend, Alan Mahoney. What brings a gentleman of the scientist class to my humble apartment? I have heard that you and your parents before you have long been keepers of the legend of the ship. Since Jordan gave the word. I am anxious to hear the word as Jordan spoke it. Why? You see, among the young scientists, there have been some who talk... Against the word. The regulations against such heresy. Some of them say the ship has no purpose. They say... They say that we're here accidentally. 
that, that we have no more grace in Jordan's eyes than the most deformed mutant who dwells in the highest level of the ship. What shall I say to you? I wish to hear the word from the mouth of one who knows that I may become more convinced. Sir, you have gift for the witness? The finest tobacco. Good. I will dim the light. Now, pay close attention, for these are the words as my father's father's father gave them to his son's son's son. This is how the ship came into being, how our people were created. In the beginning, there was only Jordan, thinking his lonely thoughts. In the beginning, there was darkness, formless and dead. Out of the loneliness came a longing. Out of the longing came a vision. Out of the dream came a planning. And out of the planning came decision. Jordan's hand was lifted, and the ship was born. Mile after mile of good compartments, tank after tank for golden corn, ladder and passage, door and locker, fit for the needs of the yet unborn. He looked on his work and found it pleasing, meat for a race that was yet to be. He thought of man, and man came into being. Then Jordan checked his thoughts and such for a king. Man untamed would shame his maker. Man unruled would spoil the plan. So Jordan made the regulations, some to speak and some to listen. Order came to the ranks of men. Crew he created to work at their stations. Scientists to guide the plan. Over them all he created captain, made him judge of the race of man. Thus it was in the golden age. These are the true words? As my father's father taught them. But what of the strange beast-like people on the upper levels of the ship? Surely Jordan did not create them. Jordan is perfect. All below him lack perfection. You have heard of the legend of Huff? I have heard that he mutinied against Jordan. Darkness swallowed the ways of virtue. Sin prevailed upon the ship. And before wisdom prevailed and the bodies of Huff and his followers were fed into the converter, some of the rebels escaped and lived to father the mutants. They are tainted with the sins of their fathers. One more question, witness. Speak. What is the ship? The ship is a great sphere, 25 kilometers wide and 100 levels deep. I know that, but what about the upper levels? The regulations forbid us to venture into the upper levels, but it is said that beyond the levels of the mutants lies the forbidden place where Jordan's spirit so I've heard. But something troubles me. Something which prompted my coming here. Yes, my son. What lies beyond the ship? 
What? What lies beyond the ship? This is everything. Answer me. I will not permit such talk. The ship is complete. The ship is universal. The ship is everywhere. The ship is everywhere. Ah, you're muttering to those of a frightened old man. They answer nothing. You question the world? I think you lie. Hear me, Mr. Highland. For what you have already said, I can have your body fed to the converter. Your soul launched on the endless trip. You threaten me. You, for Jordan's sake. You think I fear this dried fig of a man? You. Sir, my friend is impetuous. He doesn't understand. I might be persuaded to forget a substantial gift. You pig. You. Come on, Alan. The sight of this so-called holy man offends me. No, you shall not leave. Look, don't try to frighten me with a gun, old man. Remain where you are, heretic. I warn you, put down the gun. No. No closer. Drop it. Very well, then. Death to the heretic. Alan, get him. Is he dead? I don't know. Come on, Hugh. We've got to get out of here. Now, well, we can't go back. They'd feed us into the converter. What's that? The old woman must have turned in an alarm. Come on, the patrol will be here in no time. Where can we go? The upper levels. But the mutant. We'll have to take our chance. Listen, that's the patrol we've got to climb. There's a hatchway down the corridor. Quickly. Oh! Oh, we fly! Up the ladder. You wait. How far are we from the outside wall? Judging by the slope of the deck, about two miles. Mutant territory. Come on, we'll try this passageway. as if we're being watched. It's your imagination. Perhaps not. It's only a ship's racket. A grip on yourself. This is as big as a dog. Come on. I can't drag myself much further. We've got to find a compartment with water. Oh, if only you hadn't asked him that stupid question. There's no use going over that. Why did you do it? Why? Alan, I've been thinking about it for a long time. And when he began to give me those stupid pat answers... Well, I just saw red, I guess. But who are you to question the ways of Jordan? When you asked me to go with you to visit the witness, I thought you wanted spiritual help. I never dreamed I'm that sorry, you... Alan. I couldn't foresee this. I didn't know it. Wait. Wait a minute. Now what? Another ship, right? No. I thought I saw something move near that bulkhead. I didn't see anything. Maybe my eyes are going bad still. Listen. You behind? Get away from me. Alan! Alan! Look out for that knife. Stay away from me. Alan! Alan! Don't kill him, Bobo. Not yet. Who are you? Forgive my friend Bobo. Like so many of my people, he's rather impetuous where members of the so-called super race are concerned. Who are you? What place is this? As you can guess from my leg, I'm a mutant. Where is Alan? Your friend is dead. I oh. was not able to restrain my people in time to save him. Why don't you destroy me and get it over with? 
We do not kill for pleasure, Mr. Hoyland, only when necessary. You know my name? I read your identification tag. Who are you? Mutants can't read. My name is Gregory. I'm a leader of my people. Although we are unfortunate in our heredity, Mr. Hoyland, many of us are quite intelligent. Why do you live like animals? We would rather live like free animals than like regimented slaves, as you do. I've heard that you practice cannibalism. Undoubtedly, you hear many things about us. We raise our own cattle on the upper levels, and those of our people who choose to farm raise enough crops for our small population. You turn your head. Why? This one. I've never seen a creature like him. Bobo is an unfortunate. He was born without the power of speech. How can you tolerate a monstrosity? We have learned to live with difference. If we began to destroy our imperfects as you do on the lower levels, there would soon be no one left. It violates the regulations. The word of Jordan You know, Mr. Hoyland, your people are really primitive and barbaric. You dare say that to me? I dare say a good deal more. Let us go to my compartment and speak further. I'm always interested in information of the lower levels. I won't give you any information. Bobo, I want Mr. Hoyland in my cabin, please. Hey. Hey. I advise you to go quietly, Mr. Hoyland. Bobo has a hatred of superior beings, which is unfortunate, but quite understandable. Proceed. <laughs> Enter, Mr. Harlan. This is where you live? Yes. But you have books. Stolen from your libraries, Mr. Harlan. Compton's Astrophysics. The Philosophy of Interstellar Navigation. Celestial Mechanics. You have read these? Um, most of them. Why did you bring me here? What do you intend to do? Do you believe in Jordan, Mr. Harlan? There is no other belief. And the trip? I suppose you believe in the trip, too. Well, what else is there to believe? When you die, your remains are fed to the converter, and your soul makes the trip. And where does the trip take you? Why, to Centaurus, of course. Huh? And where or what is Centaurus? Why, Centaurus... Mind you, I'm just telling you the orthodox answer... Centaurus is where you arrive when you've made the trip. A place where everything is happy and everybody's happy and there's always good eating. It's mythological, of course. And you believe this? The peasants believe it, literally. But many of the younger scientists like myself know that it's figurative, symbolic. Why do you ask? Didn't it ever occur to you, Mr. Harland, that the trip is exactly what your peasants believe it is? that the ship and all the crew were actually going someplace, moving. The ship can't go anywhere. It already is everywhere. Imagine a place bigger than the ship, much bigger, with the ship inside it, moving inside. But there can't be any place bigger than the ship. There wouldn't be any place for it to be. Oh, for half's sake. Listen, you know the lowest level? Yes. If you started digging a hole in the lowest level, where would that hole go? Where would that hole... Oh, no. 
No, it's forbidden to think such a thought. Where would it go? No. No, I can't think about it. Bobo. Bobo, we're going to take Mr. Hoyland to the place. Where are we going? To the top level. But it's certain death. Nonsense. I've been there a thousand times. Come along. No, I won't. You can't make me. I think we can. Now, shall we proceed peacefully, or shall I have Bobo persuade you? Open the door, Bobo. Inside. place is this? This, Mr. Hoyland, is the main control room. Why, Mr. Hoyland, you're trembling. It isn't true. There is no such place except in mythology. Oh, you younger men are so wise, Mr. Hoyland, except for one thing. This happens to be the main control room of the ship. But it, it, it's nothing but a huge room with an instrument panel. What did you expect? How do you know this is the main control room? See these instruments? Using them, the navigator, many hundreds of years ago, actually steered the ship on its voyage. I don't understand. I didn't suppose you would. Your people have been so steeped in superstition and ignorance that the whole concept has lost its meaning. Sit in that chair. Don't be frightened. Sit down. Very well. Look up. What do you see? Nothing but a huge shield. Watch it for one moment, Mr. Hoyland. You are going to see something that few of us have ever been privileged to witness. Something so dazzling that you may find it hard to accept at first. But it is there. It is a reality. And ultimately, you must accept it. What are you doing? I'm dimming the lights. Don't be frightened. Keep your eyes focused on the shield above us. Ready? Watch. The shield! It's sliding back! The universe, Mr. Harlan. The universe in all its beauty. The stars, the planets, the suns, the moons, and the constellations. This is your heritage, Mr. Harlan. The heritage you've been too stupid to see. But it can't be. The ship is the universe. There is nothing but the ship. Ah, but there it is. You see it before your eyes, spread out like a canopy of glory. Do you still deny it? Answer me, Mr. Hoyland. Do you deny it? No. No, I can't. They lied. They lied. Why did you close the shield? You will see it again if you're not afraid. I'm not afraid. Many times. I've shown this to others of your people whom we captured, and though they saw it before their very eyes, they would not believe it. Tell me about it. Tell me about the ship, about the universe. What are these things? How did this come about? 
Many thousands of years ago, on a planet like those you've just seen, a planet called Earth, a scientist named Jordan decided to build a ship that would carry men from one planet to another. For many years, Jordan and thousands of others studied and planned. And when they were finished, they built the ship. A ship so large that it had to be assembled in its own orbit beyond the place called the moon. Sixty years it took them to construct. And when it was finished, a whole new science had been conceived. Then the trip was begun. The trip that was to land a colony of Earthmen on a far-off planet called Centaurus. Millions of light years beyond the furthest planet ever reached before. How do you know these things? Among my books are the log which Jordan himself kept and the records of the journey for the first 40 years. What happened? There was a mutiny. A man named Huff led a rebellion of those who wanted to turn back. In the struggle, the navigators were killed and the crew fell into a state of anarchy. In the years to follow, small groups of men tried to organize the ship for navigation and each time they failed. Finally, the whole idea was abandoned. And so for centuries, we have swung in space, unmanned, undirected, living in a lost world of our own making, without purpose, without direction. Why have you told me this? Why have you brought me here? You could have killed me. Can you guess? No. No, I can't. Unless... Would be too fantastic. Well, you want to finish the trip. Yes, that's it. What would it take to do it? A miracle, almost. The crew would have to be trained. Many people, each skilled in a certain duty. Couldn't you train your own people? We are too few. Besides, the main drivers in the lower levels where my people are forbidden to go. No. It would mean that both our peoples would have to work together. Our differences encouraged rather than denied. It can be done. You showed me. You can show others. I can show them. Can you? I'll see the captain himself. I have an uncle on the central board. I'll tell him what I've seen here. And do you think he'll believe you? Send one of your people with me. That's asking a good deal. I'm risking a good deal by going back. Very well. Bobo will go with you. He can't talk. There will be no need for talk. I will write a message guaranteeing safe conduct for a group of unarmed scientists to visit the main control room. Bobo will take you safely through our territory. What happens when you reach your own level is up to you. Yes, what you... You... Quick, Uncle Edison. But this mutant... He's harmless, please. Now, what is this? You're wanted I know for... all about that. Listen, Uncle, I must see the captain. The captain? Are you mad? You're a council member. You can get me to see him. They'll kill you. You're wanted for heresy. I don't care. I must speak with the captain. You're close to him. You can arrange it. I don't understand why... Uncle, listen to me. The ship is moving. I can prove it. Do you understand there is a purpose in the ship? I don't understand what you're babbling Never about. Never mind. Just talk to the captain. Tell him I have information of tremendous importance. 
Tell him I've arranged a truce with the mutants. A truce? Here, show him this paper signed by their leader. Do it, Uncle, for my sake. I don't know. Please, I... Uncle. If I'm to die, let this be my last request to you. Very well. I'll speak to the captain. I'll try. <laughs> say, Mr. Harlan, that you saw this with your own eyes. I swear it, Captain. I swear it on the word of Jordan. Let me see that paper again. Hmm. What do you think, Commander Est? I don't know, sir. It might be a trick. I guarantee you safe conduct. If these things are as Mr. Harlan reports them, it would pay to risk a few lives. The man is a convicted heretic. Still, we mustn't discount his word entirely. He has a safe conduct. The mutant risked its life coming with him. I think we might investigate. You will do it. I'll have an expedition outfitted. Dismiss, Mr. Orland. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Captain, do you... Commander Erst. Sir. You'll make the necessary arrangements for an expedition. I trust you understand. Perfectly, sir. Perfectly. Mr. Harlow. You'd better halt your men here. This is the spot. Patrol, halt. I see no welcoming party of mutants. There will be none. Their leader will meet you inside the main control room. You don't say. And just where is this main control room? Beyond that door. I see. All right, men. Ready arms. Why do you ready arms? In case of ambush. Ambush? Don't you think they could have ambushed you on the way up here a good deal more easily? You know, Mr. Harlan, I think you're a muty lover. They have a place in the converter for that kind. Lieutenant, are you mad? No, Mr. Hoyland. But most certainly you are. To think that we could be lured up here to be slaughtered with a fantastic story about some mythical control room. Guns ready, sir. Lieutenant, I warn you, these people have acted in good faith. If you break all the arms to open the control room, Mr. Hoyland. No, not until those guns are dismounted. As leader of this expedition, I order you to call them. I refuse. You cannot do this thing. This is no way to keep a truce. Very well, if you refuse. Oh, there! Mutant! Come out! For Jordan's sake, Lieutenant! You're too quiet for comfort. Mutant! Open the door! Please, Jordan, don't let anything happen. Please don't. It's opening. Ready, men. Someone's coming out. Look at his leg. Horrible. Steady. He's walking toward us. I can't stand this. Look out! Gregory! No! You fools! You've killed him! Here come the rest of them! Fire! Fire! That should teach them a lesson they won't forget. All right, men. Inside the room. Orlin, you're under arrest. As a conspirator in this ambush. Ambush, you fool, you blind, stupid fool. That'll be enough. Have you been inside this place before? Yes. What's all this machinery? These are the controls he would have used to steer the ship. He's gone out of his mind, Lieutenant. Steer the ship? Who? The leader. The one you killed. 
this ugly mutant? This ugly mutant happened to be a man of true greatness. You're mad. Am I? This man had a vision which could have saved you, but you chose to kill him because you couldn't stand the sight of his difference from you. I'll not listen to these ravings. Close your ears. Shut your minds against the conscience that tells you it's wrong to kill. That tells you that your need to be arrogant only proves your inadequacy to yourself. Shut him up. Don't listen to him, man. You can't shut your ears. My words sting you. You cannot shut your mind. And you cannot shut your shut eyes. <coughs> Don't do this. The roof. It's moving back. Look, let the vision of this confound your ignorance and blind your eyes. This is the heritage you tried to stifle in your own breasts. This is the heritage of stars and open skies for which men have yearned for centuries. Try to destroy this, and you will only destroy yourselves. Death. To the heretic. Kill me if you choose. But I say to you that this you cannot keep from our people. That they will seek it out and the ship will be manned and the ship will be steered and there will be freedom and purpose and respect for ourselves. This is your heritage. Look! Upon the universe! You have just heard another adventure into the unknown world of the future. The world of... Dimension This has been the concluding broadcast in the current series of Dimension X. If you are interested in the continuation of this series, please write and tell us so. Your ideas and suggestions will be given the most thoughtful consideration in determining the future of this program. Just drop a letter or postcard to Dimension X, care of NBC, Radio City, New York. Today, Dimension X is transcribed... Universe, written for radio by George Lefferts and based on a story by Robert Heinlein. Featured in the cast were Mason Adams as Hugh and Peter Capel as Gregory. Your host was Norman Rose. Music by Bert Berman. Engineer Bill Chambers. Sound created by Manny Siegel, Max Russell, and Wes Conant. Dimension X is produced by William Welch and directed by Edward King. Ed Archie Gardner tangles with Tallulah Bankhead on The Big Show. Two in a row from November 26, 1950, Escape, and now Dimension X. That was Universe, a story about thinking outside the box, or sphere. Dimension X with the Robert Heinlein story, Universe, from November 26, 1950. Next week, we're going to have a time slip classic from Academy Award. It's called Portrait of Jenny. We'll also hear from Hopalong Cassidy and others. I'm Norman Gilliland, and I hope you'll join me then for Skywave Audio Theater.